amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. I'm writing about an urban legend that I've known about for a while and that seems to be specific to artists. Artists work for years to be recognized, and entering the collection of a major museum usually comes at the middle or end of a productive and profitable career. But there are artists who believe that if they can get their work inside a museum, regardless of who they are and what the art is, it has to be taken as a gift and automatically becomes part of the museum's permanent collection. I've always considered this legend a little absurd, as if the physical walls of the gallery were some magical boundary, and just getting your art across the threshold grants it special privileges. But there are artists who make small pieces of art specifically to try this, smuggling the art into the museum and covertly hanging it on a wall in an inconspicuous place. I've even seen resumes of artists who have done this and then list their work as being part of the collection of that museum, and prestigious museums like the Met and the Guggenheim in New York seem to be common targets. It's fairly pervasive in the art world and even has multiple versions. For example, I've heard a version of the rumor that states that this scheme will only work at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. Someone I went to graduate school with at Syracuse University tried this as well. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome all of you back. And aren't you all just as pretty as a picture? I'm not saying what kind of picture. It could be any picture. Some of you are a little more bacon. Some Ooh. of you... That's a, that's a hard place to start. I was going to go with Dolly. Dolly's people were pretty. They were just rotting. Exactly. <laughs> Bacon's people had presence, man. I mean, like... Like disturbing, nightmarish presence. People are going to be like, who the fuck are they talking about? Oh, you know, Bacon and Dolly. That country duo. <laughs> be called Eggs and Bacon. Anyway. Ah, cha-cha-cha-cha. But yeah, some of you are the birth of Venus, and some of you are even prettier. I'm sure of it. And if you are a Bacon, just know that you're worth more than all of them. Literally, and we'll talk about that later. We want to welcome all of you back. We want to remind you that you can reach out to us on your social media at Just a Story Pod. You can also check out our website, justastorypod.com, where you can find links to all of our sources and other information about things we talk about on the episode. And you can also find my artwork there, and then you can find a link to the merch store where you can find more of my artwork on different things that are not just on the internet. Things you can buy. Crazy pants, I know. Uh, and you can also find a link to our Patreon page, and that's where you can become a sustaining member, and we'll send you a coffee mug and a tote bag. Just kidding, that's NPR. But it's kind of like that. You sign up and you support the show, and a lot of people have done that, and we love you all. Mwah. 
Yes, thank you all for helping support the show. And you can also help support the show just by listening and telling your friends, leaving reviews, tweeting about the show, whichever which way. We always appreciate it. Always welcome. Skywriting. Send us a Carrier picture. pigeons. Hordes of them. We keep saying that. We're going to have to bring them back. It's the plan. I mean, what are you working on in the basement? We have a basement? Uh, moving on. <laughs> There's one more way you can reach out to us. And that is the Urban Legend Hotline. You can reach the Urban Legend Hotline by dialing 512-222-3375. And once you have dialed that number into your keypad of choice, uh, you will connect to our voicemail. And there you can leave us a rendition of your favorite urban legend, a scary story you used to hear around the campfire, that thing your grandma always said, or that your grandpa, the dirty joke your grandpa told at church, that one, you remember that one? You can tell us that. Mm. It's probably part of an urban legend. Whatever the case may be, we would love to hear about it, and sometimes we use those as the basis of the show. Speaking of our opening stories, this week was brought to you by The Lonely Palette. Aww. Not that lonely. Okay. She's fine. (laughs) She's fine. So thanks so much. That's a podcast you can check out. Uh, You can find that through iTunes or whatever podcatcher system you use. It's great. She picks a piece of artwork for each episode and kind of goes into the history and talks about why it's important and the meanings behind it and some of the history behind it. And it's just a great little like 15, 20 minute podcast. Great way to start your day. Makes you smarter. So today's story at hand. Ah, yes, the story at hand. So this is a story that I've heard around on the internets, and it is that you can sneak a piece of your artwork into a show, like a gallery show, or into a museum, Uh and then, you know, you can list it on your resume. Can you really list it on your resume? I mean, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) Well, let's rewrite my five-year plan. So this is a classic urban legend that is told around the art studio. Around the kiln. The kiosk, maybe so, maybe so. And like one commenter said online, this just sounds like any other wishful thinking urban legend to me. Like the college ones about not having to stay past 15 minutes. If the professor doesn't show up. Yeah, we always would say that. Or getting a 4.0 for the semester if your roommate dies. I've not heard that one. There was the movie. Movie. With Zach Morris. Honey, I missed that one. You missed that I one? I did. It's a winner. And also got a little of the beating the system types. Like how to beat a breathalyzer. Does this person work for us? I, know, was, I thought it was a good comment. I was like, this kind of <laughs> sums up everything. The thing about this urban legend. Is that it's not. Well, it's an urban legend. But that it's not. But let's say a few people have taken it at face value. I bet there were people doing it before it was cool. I bet there were hipster art sneaker inners back in the early days of the Louvre. Oh, any museum, of course. Well, so in 2003, at the Tate in London, a stunt was done, as described, was done planned with precision and executed with a plum. Our good old graffiti friend Banksy. I've heard of him. Was disguised as an old man. And he went into the Tate Britain and stuck one of his creations onto a gallery wall. How do you stick it? Oh, with tape. Like with 3M Yeah, like he had it all already planted. It was in his trench coat. How anyone gets into into a museum wearing a trench coat (laughs) is beyond me. He looked like an old man. Yeah, he looked like an art thief. We'll talk about that later. Was there Pink Panther music playing while he did this? He kind of looked like Inspector Clouseau. 
So the picture he hung was a small oil painting of this like bucolic scene that he had painted on blue and white tape to represent a police line. Fun. He also glued on a little caption. Oh, what do you mean? Like a caption or like a description? Like a description. Like the proper thing that's in a museum yeah. that says like uh, kittens with hairball by Mona Lisa produced 1893 oil on panel donated by the so-and-so oh yeah but don't forget you've got that descriptive of the kittens with the hairballs oh the melancholy kittens represent the loss of innocence felt by most young people as they enter the hoi polloi of life on the streets and the hairball itself may represent a narcotic dependency that was developed early on by the kittens who have licked themselves and discovered that they themselves are their own drugs. <laughs> oh my, what have you been on? I just read the description of Kitten with Hairball, okay? Well, <laughs> I didn't write it. <laughs> yes, she just made it up. <laughs> but his caption said, This new acquisition is a beautiful example of the neo-post-idiotic style. Little is known about Banksy, whose work is inspired by cannabis resin and daytime television. Presented by the artist personally. 2003. Presented by the artist personally. Yes. Bank, bank, bank. Only way I would have improved upon that, and it's, I mean, just a note, Banksy, if you're listening, I would have written in disguise. Just just that little bit more. Really? You could use something like incognito or something like that. An elderly friend of the artist in person or something. Some nod to go review that video footage. Well, so it was discovered, but not because anyone realized it was a false painting. It was because it fell to the floor because the tape unstuck. Banksy. Another note. (laughs) An art student found it, and he said, when it fell to the floor, a security guard went over to it in a bit of a panic. He then realized that something was up, and the other security guards were called. I think it's great. An amusing art gesture. Now, of course, Banksy is now a world-famous kind of graffiti and performance artist. He's kind of what Dada turned into. Like, (laughs) anti-art art gorilla art kind of a little bit of our friend from this man what is it Bissett? yeah luther Bissett. yes yeah so banksy said about it he felt like this was a shortcut <laughs> to actually go through the process of having a painting selected must be quite boring it's a lot more fun to go and put your own up it's all about cutting out the middleman or the curator in the case of the tate he said he felt like the picture was pretty good <laughs> And he said, people often ask whether graffiti is art. Well, it must be now. It's been hanging in the Tate. <laughs> so he repeated the stunt in 2004 in the Louvre. The Louvre. We're not going to do it right, people. It's just one it's of those words. Louvre. It's I, the it's the Louvre. I listened to several audiobooks preparing for this episode, and every single one of the narrators was like, the Louvre. Louvre. And I was like, you know what? If you don't have a pencil-thin mustache and a disdain for human existence, I just don't care. Like, I don't want to <laughs> hear you pronounce it correctly. <laughs> but the next year, he repeated the stunt in New York City, where at the Met, he installed You Have Beautiful Eyes, which there's video of him installing this. Yes, I've seen this clip. It is the gas mask one? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. The same thing. He, like, finds an old painting in a junk shop, Mm -hmm. and he just paints over it. So it's, like, a classic painting you might see in your grandma's house of, like, a pretty young girl. And he painted a gas mask over it. 
He also put something in the Brooklyn Museum and also in the American Museum of Natural History, a high-tech beetle equipped with missiles. Oh my god, that's my favorite. That he put in the Hall of Biodiversity. And you know there was like one 18-year-old was like, oh yeah, I've read about that. (laughs) Definitely telling his girlfriend about it. Yeah. You don't know about this? Like, no, I mean at the Natural History Museum. Oh, that's what I meant. Oh, okay. I, thought I heard she... about this on Alex Jones. Yeah, and they're going to come come for us in our sleep. Actually, lots of beetles have missiles. There's the bombardier beetle. Did you just lean into that? Did you just like <laughs> embrace it and say like, yeah, it would have been that guy? Is that what you did? You know, someone's got to stand up for it. <laughs> His privilege proceeds him. And then when we were in New York a few years back, Banksy was doing a residency. Yes. And you were working New York Comic Con. I was. And my buddy and I were at Brooklyn Brewery. And we were standing. Oh my God, that is the most obnoxious. All of this makes the most obnoxious story. But it's all true. Ever. This is before we went to see My Morning Jacket. God. (laughs) But it was after. I feel like Portlandia is going to just send the mothership for it. It was after we hung out with Duffy from Guns N' Roses. (laughs) But we were standing out there in this truck drives by that's making these screams and cries and they're all these stuffed animals like pigs and cows and stuff like puppets hanging out of the side screaming and we were all just like what the fuck is going on and we found out later it was a banksy (laughs) piece that was driving around brooklyn so i think the the title of that piece is we used to be cool (laughs) Mm mm-hmm But speaking of cool, I hate to say it, but Banksy was not the first person to do this and film it. Oh, who was doing it before it was cool? Tom Green. Oh, God. Like, okay, so Tom Green used to come on MTV right before or after TRL, Total Request Live, with Carson Daly, which was a big part of my adolescence. And I knew as I watched it when I was like 10 or whatever, I was like, I bet I would think this is funny if I was an adult. (laughs) Like, I just didn't get Tom Green. Or an adolescent boy. Yeah, we, I thought maybe. it was hilarious. Okay, maybe that was it. Maybe I was missing it. Maybe I was like, this is smarter than me. And it was really just not for me at all. That's it. <laughs> just. But in his first episode in 1999, he goes to the National Gallery and hangs his painting, Tiger Zebra. And, and what is the painting of? It's uh, an artistic interpretation of... Is it a tiger zebra or is that just the name? No, we watched it. You saw it. This is like abstract. Abstract. Tiger zebra. He goes in and he's, I don't know if he's actually trying to sneak or not, but he sneaks badly and people notice him putting the painting up and they're like, no, 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 you can't do that. It's like, I'm just, I'm just going to put it here. I'm just going to put it right here. I'm just going to put it here. And they like walk away to probably go talk to a superior or whatever. He's like, um... This has never happened before. What do we do? And then (laughs) he starts painting a moon on it. Yeah. Well, remember there's like a group of like a a tour group comes Mm -hmm. up with like a docent. He's like, do you think trees would be good here? And starts pulls a Sharpie out and tries drawing trees on it. And And they're freaking out. Everyone's freaking out because they think it may actually be art at this point. They're not sure what's happening. And then he like draws a moon on it. And then he like takes the description card out and like scratches it out and calls it Tiger Zebra with Moon. It's really funny. Retitles it. I found it pretty, pretty funny. And I was like, maybe I was right when I was 10. And I would think this was hilarious if I was a grown up. Or maybe that was the one humorous thing he did. I can't be sure. I'm definitely not rewatching his catalog. (laughs) But people have done other stunts like this, such as one 
teenager put down a pair of glasses at the San Francisco MoMA uh, to see if people would respond to it and people start gathering around it and taking pictures. Did he do it on purpose or did he just drop his glasses? Oh, no, he did it on purpose. Oh, that's, I think that's worse for the people who took pictures of it. <laughs> but, you know, it's going to be pretty easy to sneak art in to a museum, especially if it's smaller, because that's not what anyone's expecting to happen. Not what they're trained to, to deal with. As Banksley said, obviously, they've got their eye a lot more on things leaving than things going in, which works in my favor. But sometimes, sneaking paintings out of museums can make the paintings even more famous. This may or may not have been the case with the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. So this occurred on March 17th of 1990 or in the early morning hours of March 18th, 1990 in Boston. So what happens on March 17th every year? I don't know. Yes, you do. What happens? St. Patrick's. I guess that. I was thinking that. St. Patrick's Patrick's Day. Day. Where are they? Boston. What's Boston? Red Sox. Irish. (laughs) How do we celebrate St. Patrick's Day in America? Drink. Shit-faced. So Boston's shit-faced, except these two guys. <laughs> Debatable. And so there are two guys at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston guarding the artwork. They're both like college students who have rock bands on the side. They get a knock at the door. It's the cops. They need to investigate a disturbance, they say. The kids open the door. They let the cops in. And then the cops tell them that it's a robbery. What? Way to flip the script, cops. So... They duct tape them. Huh? Like they duct tape their wrist and their feet and they cover their faces with duct tape. Like completely wrap their heads in duct tape except a hole for their nose and mouth. I was thinking that. So the guy's making just over minimum wage, working on St. Patty's Day in Boston, and this shit happens. They're having a really bad day. It's a bad day. They didn't even get to go drink the green beer. No green beer for you, just duct tape. The two cop thieves spend the next 81 minutes... This is not like a run-in, grab, which they spent 81 minutes wow. in the museum just shopping. Holy cow. What'd they take? So they took 13 artworks. One reporter said, brazenly and clumsily, they cut two Rembrandts from their frames, smashed glass cases holding other works, and made off with a valuable yet oddball haul. Yeah, did they have like a list? Well, it seems like they did go after something specifically. Uh-huh. But then it seems like they were like, well, we got time. What else you want to get? And I don't know if that's what happened. That's not confirmed by any footage or anything like that. That's yeah, so there weren't security cameras. Um, they tried to delete the footage. Oh, really? Um, and they also tried to delete the motion detector footage. There's some. Okay. So like, if you wanted to deep dive into this, there's some great books. There's an entire podcast dedicated to it. And there's some really interesting clues. Like, they thought they deleted the footage, but they didn't realize it had basically uploaded to an early precursor of the cloud. Oh, okay. So the police do have some footage and some motion capture uh, information, like motion-activated sensors that record data. So they do have that to work with. And then, like, according to that data, one of the, the thieves never entered one of the rooms where a painting was taken. So there's some holes in the evidence, and it's really weird. So they are waltzing around. I imagine it very much like the scene in American Psycho where he's dancing around in the wetsuit. Or the, you know, the raincoat. And they take the following things. They take the concert by Vermeer. So Vermeer. 
there are only like a limited number of Vermeer paintings in the world, so they're super valuable. Right, there are 34 total. He painted Girl with a Pearl Earring. A lot of domestic interior scenes. He's a very overlooked Dutch painter until about the 1930s when his paintings skyrocketed in value after two or three art scholars began talking him up. And Isabella Stewart Gardner had acquired the concert in Paris and wanted an auction and was super thrilled about it and did not pay a huge amount of money for it at the time. And now it's estimated to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. There was also Storm at Galilee, which is Rembrandt's only known seascape. And it depicts the disciples in Christ on the boat where they're like, oh, no, we're going to die. And he like calms the storm walks on the water things but it's the storm part of it so it's a really cool painting and then lady and gentleman in black which was painted by rembrandt or a disciple and then they took a sketched self-portrait of rembrandt manet's chez totoni several degas sketches the finial from a napoleonic flag and a small shang dynasty vase It seems so random. They didn't steal the most valuable pieces, though. The Vermeer debatably was. The Storm of the Sea of Galilee was. Like, there's some that were like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Right. But the Rape of Europa is there. Yes. uh, Titian's great work, the Rape of Europa, the painting that inspired you know, generations of old masters is actually part of the collection. There are also a ton of Whistlers and Sargents. American left there. Yeah, not touched. But they took three Degas sketches and they had to break glass to get to them. Like, it seems like very strange choices. Oh, and they left a real Degas, like a finished Degas canvas. So they had a list. I mean, had to be. Or they had two or three things they were supposed to grab and just went through trying to take stuff that they thought they could actually sell again. And Or maybe that they thought they could fit into however they got it out. Yeah. You know, like, Rape of Europa might have been impossible to get out. Mm-hmm. So the museum first offered a $500,000 reward. Later, the reward turned into a million dollars. Still later, $5 million. And today, the reward stands at $10 million oh for the gosh. return of the paintings. So if you know where they are, please, please contact the, the Urban Legend of, Hotline. <laughs> the Urban Legend Hotline, and we'll tell them. We will pay you $3 million for them, <laughs> and we will find the money somewhere. <laughs> So today, empty frames hang in the gallery where the paintings were. Yeah, and they have like a augmented reality app to where you can put it over the frames and the paintings are still there. Yes. Which is kind of cool. Now that was done because in the will of Isabella Stewart Gardner, she said that nothing was to be moved from the place that she put it. Oh, so they had to leave it up or empty or an empty spot at the least. Right. In theory. It also makes a very good story. <laughs> We've been conjecturing the human populace of Earth uh, since the paintings were taken about who may have taken them. Yeah, was it an inside job? Was it a... Uh, well, people were very suspicious because it seemed like they knew where to go to turn things off and they had kind of... Delete the video footage. Yeah, they, they had to have some kind of working knowledge. And because there was not a... Like, motion detectors set off in one of the rooms. They thought maybe one of the guards took some of the stuff earlier. But that's never been proven. The FBI and the police are like, nah, not really. We don't know. But one theory that was very popular was that it might have been orchestrated by one of the most notorious art thieves in history, Miles J. Connor Jr. 
Now, he actually toured with the Beach Boys for a bit, so they were big into the criminals. The Manson, <laughs> this guy. Like, I feel like we need to go look up every person who ever hung out with the Beach Boys, and we will find criminals. <laughs> in 1997, he and an associate, William P. Youngworth, who was an art dealer, came forward and said that they had planned the whole thing. And this was believable. Since Connor had once directed associates to steal a Rembrandt from the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and used the return of the painting as a bargaining chip to get him out of jail. He was in jail when they took the painting. He set it up and had them leverage it to get him out. So even though he had been locked up at the time of the heist, they were like, yeah, but look what he did before. But no bounty of treasure was ever produced. Now, another theory involved James Whitey Bulger. Oh, no. Did he tour with the Beach Boys? He toured with the Irish Mob. Oh, yeah. Now, I know he sounds like he's from 1930, but this was all during the gang wars in Boston, like 80s, 90s. More departed, less Bonnie and Clyde. This theory is based on circumstantial evidence that links Bulger to the IRA. Oh. The terrorist organization, the terrorist in, Ireland. organization yeah. in Ireland. Yeah. 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 And they noted that after his disappearance from the States, he had safe deposit boxes throughout Europe filled with cash, valuables, and keys to the next safe deposit box. And so people thought he might have had paintings stolen, shipped them over, and planned to use that in, like, evading authorities, like, as a bargaining chip to stay out of jail. But there are still other theories that are probably more likely that pose the idea that low-level gangsters from Boston stole the work to leverage later against prison sentences or against other people that they might wish to implicate. Oh, that's a good idea. So one octogenarian heart for man came forward in 2017 when he was facing unrelated charges, but his tips have failed to yield any paintings thus far. That is still a very active line of investigation. Yeah, I mean, there are headlines about this this year. Right. The Isabella Gardner Museum is a very interesting establishment because she was one of the few women who began collecting art around the time that Carnegie and J.P. Morgan and all of the robber barons were interested in collecting art. It's really kicked off the modern American art market. Right. But she was personal friends with Whistler and Sargent. Sargent painted her portrait many times. From the New York Times, it says, The Gardner Museum was created by Isabella Stewart Gardner, a wealthy Boston arts patron who amassed a world-class collection of paintings, sculptures, Asian and European antiquities, and curiosities, like letters from Napoleon and Beethoven's death mask. In 1903, she arranged her 2,500 or so treasures inside a just-finished Venetian-style palazzo that became her home as well as a museum open to the public. Her memorable fiat was that upon her death in 1924, not one item could be moved from the spot she had chosen to display it. So she was a very particular woman of a very particular taste who was very particular about leaving her estate to in the public trust. So while the Isabella Gardner Museum heist is one of the most famous art heists ever done, there's another art heist that created an icon. And this begs the question, is this a cultural icon or is it the greatest painting of all time? So let's go to France. Let's go to the Louvre again. So 1911, the Louvre. In the Salon Carré, the square room, there were several famous paintings by the old masters. Two by Leonardo da Vinci, three by Titian, two by Raphael, three by Veronese, one by Tintoretto, 
and of course the Rubens a Rembrandt of Velasquez. So that Tuesday morning, the painter, Louis Baron, arrived at the Louvre to sketch the Mona Lisa. And he went to, you know, set up his easel to do his work, and all he found were four iron hooks in the wall. That's not supposed to be there like that, he thought. Right? It wasn't too alarmed, though, because at that time, there was a project underway to photograph the Louvre's collection. At that time, the photos weren't going to come out great inside, so they would actually take them up to the roof so they could have good lighting for the photos. And that's how 17 paintings were destroyed by a freak hailstorm. Like, can you imagine? Like, oh, we got to lug these up the stairs. So he presumed the photographers had her, and he even joked with the guard, of course, when women are not with their lovers, they're apt to be with their photographers. But when Mona Lisa was still absent at 11 a.m., he sent the guard to ask the photographers when she would be back. Then they eventually <laughs> talked to the photographers, and they're like, what do you mean? Uh, we did not have that one. <laughs> so at this time, the director of the museum was on vacation. Oh, no. So the news filtered up to the acting head, Georges Benedetti, that the Mona Lisa was gone. Bum, bum, bum. Call the Paris police, who alert the National Crime Investigation Department. So by early afternoon, 60 inspectors and more than 100 policemen are at the museum. They bolt the doors, interrogate the visitors, and clear the galleries and station guards at the entrance. And for an entire week... They search every closet, corner, nook and cranny, room by room, floor by floor. All 49 acres of the Louvre. And they cannot find her. Bum, bum, bum. Police set up checkpoints on roads leading out of Paris. They look at the contents of every wagon, automobile, truck. Ships that departed during the time that the theft had occurred and when it was discovered were searched when they reached their overseas destination. Mm including the Kaiser Wilhelm II, which docked in New York. Now, Monsieur Benedet told the New York Times, Why the theft was committed is a mystery to me, as I consider the picture valueless in the hands of a private individual. If you had the Mona Lisa, what could you do with her? She's mine, all mine, my precious Gollum stole her. That was the theory. Some people did think that the art thief stole him because he was in love with her. Oh, of course. I mean, Paris newspapers in the turn of the century. Yellow journalism in Paris. But the thing is, the Mona Lisa was not the most famous painting in the Louvre. It was not even the most famous painting in that gallery. <laughs> and most likely, it was about 28 hours until anyone even noticed that it was gone. Which is really funny to think of today. At the time, they felt like it was probably stolen the day before when the Louvre was closed uh, on okay. Mondays. Oh, I hate that museums are closed on Mondays. Ruins it always gets us. Vacations. And of course, that director that had left for vacation for the summer assured the press before leaving that nothing would happen to the museums. You might as well pretend that one could steal the towers of the Cathedral of Notre Dame. <laughs> Chalange, someone says. Chalange. One French journalist commented after the theft that Le Jacon, the French name for Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa was stolen because nobody believed she could be. So New York Times headline, 60 detectives seek stolen Mona Lisa, but no clue has yet been discovered to whereabouts of Leonardo's masterpiece. 
And here's a real great clue in of how not that famous Leonardo da Vinci was in the U.S. They spelled his name wrong through the entire article. Then it says, French public indignant. As per usual. The affair is discussed everywhere today as a national scandal of the first magnitude. So the Times of London said Paris has been startled. Okay, wait, I'm sorry. We need to examine these because I feel like they tell you a lot about the character of a city. Oh no, definitely. Like, like that's like <laughs> look at those Parisians. Paris has been startled. City Paris. Like <laughs> and then Washington Post. <laughs> tell them, tell them what the Washington Post. The art world was thrown into consternation. <laughs> politically chosen word like not turmoil you know like careful language and in, in france l'illustration what audacious criminal what mystifier what maniac collector what insane lover has committed this abduction yeah that's the that's the that's the french paper yeah it's on the paris rags <laughs> you know and they offered a reward of forty thousand francs and that could deliver the painting to their office by the way now the Paris Journal then proceeded to offer 50,000 francs and it kept rising. But every now, paper wanted to be the one to recover it. Of course. And publish that picture on their front page. Now, you have to remember what time this is. This is the Belle Époque. The beautiful time? In Paris. Okay. Yeah, 1911. So before World War One. Right. Cultural center of the universe. Exactly. It is the cultural center of the universe. Art, theater, dance, everything. That is where it is. You've got the Eiffel Tower that was just built. That they hated. <laughs> we are so fancy and sick of that thing. And so the New York Times said that the crime has caused such a sensation that Parisians for the time have forgotten the rumors of war. And that's that's the New York Times. It could always be worse. <laughs> but it tells you just what time it is. This is like they are the center of the universe for art, and they, they feel like they are. They, they still do. Yes. But war is brewing around, though. And they're, like, not really that worried about it because they took a painting. They took the painting. It was a great escape story. A great something. Yeah. Instead of reading about Wilhelm, you can read about... This Mona Lisa that was stolen by some maniac lover. So instead of William Wilhelm. So the museum opened in a week and they kind of did what the Isabella Gardner Museum has now. They just left the space blank with the four hooks and people from everywhere came and lined up to, to look at the it, hooks to walk past it. It was the first time they had significant lines outside of the Louvre. <laughs> One writer even said the Louvre was ex exhibiting the first conceptual installation in the history of art. The absence of a painting. <laughs> so one tourist even called it the mark of shame. This was Franz Kafka, who was visiting oh, Paris. Okay. It's very Kafka-esque, you say. The, the absence of art is art, and we're all dying. But he noted in the diary that the excitement and the knots of people as if the Mona Lisa had just been stolen. Months later, still as people. So the Mona Lisa was everywhere. There were photographs of it. And so, the <laughs> so she had made it to the roof. She had. The French police printed off 6,500 copies for distribution on the streets of Paris. Wanted, dead or alive. What'd she do? <laughs> <laughs> she looks rough. But there were chorus lines made up with the faces of Mona Lisa that danced topless in the cabarets. Yes. Comedians asked... <laughs> Will the Eiffel Tower be next? There were songs written. It was on every paper. 
It was used in advertisements. So it was the OJ trial of its time. Yes. There was a guy that tried to sell the Eiffel Tower once. That's for another day. Yeah. <laughs> well, he did sell it, but he couldn't <laughs> deliver. That we know of. I'm going to keep making that noise until we're done with the 1911 mystery, apparently. But the Mona Lisa, they started making postcards that sold in huge numbers. Pictures of her leaving Paris with Leonardo da Vinci. Thumbing her nose at France on a holiday in Nice. No painting had ever been reproduced to this scale. She'd suddenly gone from this high culture to a staple of consumer culture. She became pop art. Exactly. A woman of the people. Because this painting is by a master, Leonardo da Vinci, but it was not considered his crowning achievement. And why would it be? It's nice. It's (laughs) nice. It's nice. So is it a truly remarkable earth-changing painting? Or is it a cultural icon? And like the little girl on the taco shell commercial, I say to you, why not not both? both. (laughs) Now, to people who study art and art history, the Mona Lisa has a significance separate and apart from this world tour she did. Heist! (laughs) So in the way that we remember that Isaac Newton theorized the laws of motion. Yeah, apples hit him or something. Right. We remember that he kind of is in charge of that he did that people use that every day still right people when they're doing calculations they use that work he did oh yeah i mean and you can't right you can't get past science and or math without looking at his work well that's kind of what some of the techniques in the mona lisa represent for da vinci he pioneered these techniques and taught them to generations of painters who taught them to generations of painters and now they're the absolute foundation for a lot of portraiture and fine art painting let's look at the specifications of this piece try to understand what it is that was stolen this is from the louvre louvre's louvre's uh catalog description leonardo di sepero da vinci known as leonardo da vinci portrait of lisa gerandini wife of francesco giocondo known as the mona lisa or the Joconde. circa 1503 through 19 material wood parentheses poplar height 0.77 meters width 0.53 meters Acquired by Francois I in 1518. Inventory number 779. So the portrait was started in 1503, and it's thought to be a portrait of Lisa Gerondini, the wife of Florentine cloth merchant named Francesco Giocondo. And that's where the alternative or French title comes from, Gioconde. So the things that we don't know, according to the Louvre. We don't know exactly who the sitter is. I thought it was Da Vinci and drag. Now, that is a very popular theory. <laughs> I think I watched that special when I was like in high school. On the History Channel, yeah. that guy with the alien hair was there for sure. We don't know exactly who commissioned it. We don't know how long it was in Leonardo da Vinci's possession. And we don't know how it came to be in the Royal French collection. So we don't know much but why not speculate, says the world. Why not? It's much more fun. So the portrait may have been painted to mark one of two events in the life of the sitter and her husband. So it was either commissioned on the occasion of them buying their first house in 1503 or when their second son, Andrea, was born in December of 1502 after their daughter died in 1499. And this was 
theorized because the Mona Lisa's hair is covered with a dark veil and people took that to be a mourning veil, but it's actually a symbol of purity. It was like the veil you'd wear to church. Mm-hmm. Her clothing is unremarkable, they say. Neither the yellow sleeves of her gown, nor her pleated gown, nor the scarf delicately draped on her shoulders are signs of aristocratic status. So though she would have been upper middle class, the painter did not go out of his way to make her look wealthy, to put in emblems of wealth. Right. It's kind of simple. Right. Or ostentatious fabrics and things of that nature, if she was indeed married to a silk merchant. This painting represents the culmination of a lot of work and research by da Vinci into portraiture and portrait painting. The technical formula for the construction of a portrait changes. This is one of the earliest known half-length portraits in Italy. It includes her hands and her arms. None of that touches the boundary of the painting. It's painted at a realistic scale, about life size. So when you look at her, it's like looking at a person. Now, of course, there are other aspects of the work that are visible in other schools of painting. Flemish portraiture had already done this style of portrait, but there's a spatial coherence and a kind of atmospheric illusion that's accomplished in this work that is, in the words of the Louvre, very unique to Leonardo. And none of his earlier portraits display such controlled majesty, they say. Don't be so mean. I mean, they're like, it's very important. I just think, like, it's, I don't know how to explain it, like, they're going out of their way to illustrate that it is... I mean, isn't that kind of what they do for every painting they have? No. And every museum? Like, I mean, it's their jobs. Like, let me tell you why this is important. They're not used car salesmen. Are they? But, I mean, it it is one of those things where it's an example of his, like, amazing technique. Right. So, one thing that Leonardo did that is similar to the Isaac Newton example I mentioned earlier is Sufmato. And I discussed Sufmato a little bit in our uh, Murder as One of the Fine Arts episodes. Oh, that's a callback. Yep. Way back. <laughs> but it means without lines or borders in the manner of smoke. And he did not outline, but used different tones and shades of paint to create an illusion of light and shadow. Starting with dark undertones, he would build up these three-dimensional features through layers and layers of semi-transparent glazes. He used darker shades to highlight the features and borders of a subject. And it was hailed as an innovation in painting. So think of it as a not-coloring-book thing. It's what gives it that almost, like, mysterious vibe to all of his paintings. Right. There is no hard line. Because there are no hard lines on the human face. I mean, some people, yeah. I was going to say, I I know a few people with some hard lines. This is part of the reason that her smile seems so lively or enigmatic. Now, the smile itself is one of the reasons that, like, the general public will say that the painting is so famous. Like, if you ask someone, what is it about the Mona Lisa that makes, that captivates people, they say it's her smile. Mona Lisa's smile. Right. And it is probably emphasized for a reason in this portrait. Leonardo da Vinci would often paint a symbol or a physical manifestation of the sitter's last name into his portraits. That's cool. It's kind of like iconography of sense. Yes. So he did this in his portrait of Genova Binci, which shows Juniper or Ginepro in Italian, which is a cognate of Genova's name and thus her symbol. And it also represents chastity. I think if it was something like that was a horrible symbol, he probably wouldn't put it in. But if it had a nice meaning, right. it, it was invited. And he also did this in his painting Lady with Ermine. Which is a portrait of a lady with an ermine. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for that disambiguation. Like 
It's like a weasel. It's like a, well, a ferret's a weasel. <laughs> I just thought it was great. In the, in the blurb on the museum explanation, it says weasel. And I'm like, you don't want to hold a weasel. Like, <laughs> hold a weasel. No one wants to hold a weasel. Ferrets are cute. So according to that, it, the painting depicts Gadarini holding a weasel in its winter coat, which is a portrayal of the sitter's character as a chaste, wholesome lady. The ermine may also be a pun to Gallerini's name, since the Greek word for weasel is Galli, a nod to the name to the family of Cecilia Gallerini. Another meaning for the presence of the ermine may refer to the Duke himself, who commissioned it, has the nickname Italian Moor with Ermine, after receiving the insignia of the Order of the Ermine given by the King of Naples. No, oh, that's interesting. So, lots of reasons for it to be there. But the Mona Lisa has this smile, maybe, because it is a visual representation of happiness, which is suggested by the Italian word Gioconda, which is a near cognate to Giocondo, the last name of the sitter's husband. So in addition to the innovative techniques seen in the portraiture, the background itself was kind of a new idea. This open landscape in the distance is very unusual for the time, and it helps move the eye back and forth across the central area on which Da Vinci was trying to direct our focus. Oh, and people say that its eyes follow you. Well, the eyes are the central focus of the painting. Everything kind of directs you to the eyes. And so when you're focusing on her eyes, the smile itself shifts into your lower peripheral vision and you're not able to focus on it. And when it sits in your peripheral vision, if you're looking at her eyes, the corners of the mouth seem more upturned. And when you focus on the mouth, that disappears. So it seems that it's actually moving, that it's disappearing, that it's there and then it's not. It creates an optical illusion. Interesting. So when you're redirected by the, the flow of the painting to look at her eyes, seems she's smiling. But when you look away and look at her mouth, the smile disappears, which is very clever. It is. I mean, like, I cannot believe he did this. Of course, he's one of the most intelligent people that have ever existed. True. Speaking of that, people talk about the golden ratio. Well, Dan Brown talks about it. Well, Sorry. People were talking about it before <laughs> Dan Brown. He took it to another level. So the golden ratio or the divine proportion is supposed to be something that in aesthetics uh, that is always pleasing to the eye. If things are oriented around this ratio, which is found in nature, we will respond to them by being pleased so it was first described in 1497 and published in 1509 by Luca Pecciolli. So he wrote, A work necessary for all clear-sighted and inquiring human minds in which everyone who loves to study philosophy, perspective, painting, sculpture, architecture, music, and other mathematical disciplines will find very delicate, subtle, and admirable teaching and will delight in diverse questions touching on a very secret science. So supposedly the ratio is visible in the face of the Mona Lisa and, you know, in all the other paintings. And then if you do the Fibonacci sequence and turn around 17 times, Jesus jumps out at you. I don't know. The Da Vinci Code confused me. Mary Magdalene. Pay attention. So it's also a very important cultural artifact because we know this is a painting with great provenance. It's been in the control of the French government since 1519. And it's moved directly from the wall of Napoleon's bedroom to the Louvre in 1800. So we know it's authentic and that it represents this really interesting nexus that's always existed between powerful people and art. No, definitely. So the painting was taken to France by Leonardo da Vinci, and it was not given to the person who commissioned it. 
Maybe. Um, a lot of people think he gave it to the king, or even he had it unfinished, and the king, like, quested it to be finished. Well, he died the year the king acquired it, so oh, it's okay. very possible he was going through his things. He came yeah. to France at the bequest of Francois I, who mm. would acquire the painting, uh, but he was his he was his painter then, and if this was among his things when he died... I'm sure Francois would be like, I'll have Lisette. And he took it and Socle Bleu. Then we have the Mona Lisa. But the question remains, if this was a commissioned portrait, why was it never delivered to the man who commissioned it? There's no record of sale in any of the Italian documents that would indicate that it ever came into the possession of Gioconda. But that could have been like that the merchant's ships all sunk and he couldn't afford to pay the bill. It could be any reason. They died. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's so many reasons and things like that happened. So there's another version of the Mona Lisa called the Isleworth Mona Lisa, which I would suggest you go take some time and learn about if you're interested. And so one theory that's bandied about is this other painting was what was delivered to the patron and he painted another for himself well in the isleworth mona lisa the sitter appears much younger oh okay so maybe it was something he returned to later or he knew her and did like a follow-up or something we don't know or maybe he was in drag and maybe he was just in drag and so when he got older she got older (laughs) i don't know anyway even when i was like in middle school and watched that i was like uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, I don't see it. <laughs> but while it was known as one of the great master's works, it was not exactly the most famous painting in the Louvre. Or the most famous painting by Da Vinci. Or the most famous painting in the room it was in. No. So a century ago, the painting's fame was restricted to the West, where she'd been buoyed up on clouds of romantic hype ever since Walter Pater wrote in 1869, She is older than the rocks among which she sits, like the vampire, she's been dead many times, which, although not exactly gallant, broadcast her strange allure to hundreds of thousands. So, in the 1860s, art critics claimed the Mona Lisa was the finest example of Renaissance painting. This judgment, however, had not yet filtered beyond the slight little group of intelligentsia. The interest in her was relatively minimal. In 1878, in his guidebook to Paris... Carl Baktiker offered one paragraph about the portrait. In 1907, she had two sentences, much less than other things in the museum like Venus de Milo and Nike. So in addition to this theft, she had her image elevated again when Jackie Kennedy was like, hey, Charles de Gaulle, can I borrow your Mona Lisa? And he was like, sure, girl, you're classy bitch. And so Mona Lisa came to America and did a little tour. And also went to Tokyo. She went to Tokyo, she, you know, went abroad, got some culture. She is culture. Hilarious. You're so funny. (laughs) Yeah. And then again, when Dan Brown was like, Da Vinci Code, and everyone's like, what's that? What do you mean? And so the Da Vinci Code speculates there are hidden messages all within the Mona Lisa, and then they found some. In 2010, members of the Italian National Committee for Cultural Heritage announced that they had done microscopic scrutiny of the work. And revealed many new discoveries. In the Mona Lisa's right eye, the artist's initial L appears. And researchers also assert that they found the letter S in the numbers 7 and 2. And maybe Uh they had mystical qualities. Oh, definitely. Because 7 has very male energy and 2 has very feminine energy. And anyway, I'm dubious. Yeah. 
The same guy claims that he found Caravaggio's bones. Oh, of course. So, yeah. Maybe he's a genius and I just don't realize it. So, the Mona Lisa is very, very beloved. She does have her own mailbox for all the fan mail she receives. Of course. And in addition to her um, absence from the Louvre, she has also been defaced a couple of times. In 1956, there were two attempts on her life. Poor girl. One person threw acid at the painting and another threw a rock at it. And this did leave visible damage. And then bulletproof glass was put in front of her and it repelled subsequent attacks such as spray paint in 1974 and a teacup in 2009. Now the painting is declared truly priceless and it can neither be bought nor sold according to French heritage law. So while now it's considered priceless, like we said in 1911, there was a... There was not this priceless element to it. It was barely talked about outside of art critics and the intelligentsia. Which maybe that was the entire population of France. Who knows? So, who did it? Leonardo da Vinci's ghost. The descendants of Mary Magdalene. So when I was in third grade, we had to write a story. Oh, really? And I wrote about a boy who was in the loop and saw Leonardo da Vinci's ghost. Oh, that's wonderful. Now that I... That up. <laughs> it's around. Well, the Paris papers and the coffee shops were full of stories and theories. ideas and theories. Maybe it was a gang of anarchist bank robbers. Not that crazy at the time. But there had been a group of them terrorizing Paris and fleeing their crimes in the first recorded use of a getaway car. Oh. Maybe it was in Switzerland. Also not a crazy idea. Argentina? Not Well, it's like all the places we had Nazis. Maybe it was a part of the German plot to discredit France and cause a lot of upset and confusion prior to World War One. They're not Russians. Oh, no. If naked George Washington goes missing, I'm blaming the Russians. Well, on the other hand, some people thought it was the French government's way of trying to distract public opinion from all the uprisings in colonial West Africa. And, of course, all the problems in Europe as well. Why not give them a mystery? I mean, don't take one of the good ones. Take a a lesser master. One of them. The New York Times even speculated that maybe it was a botched restoration job. (laughs) They're so cynical. They're just covering it up. One of the most popular conspiracy theories suggested that a rich American had masterminded the theft. Because in France, there was a great deal of concern that American millionaires were buying up the legacy of France. The best paintings. Well, I mean, obviously, that's not too far off the mark. As previously discussed, there were rampant collectors in the United States. Everyone with more than a million dollars to spare was going after every piece of art ever. And no one was really, like, buying up the American stuff just yet. Not yet. So, J.P. Morgan... I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah. You know, you see it on every our credit cards. Yes. <laughs> he was the top candidate. Yeah, I would buy that. <laughs> on August 29th of 1911, so just a few, just about, I think it was about two weeks after the theft, the Paris Journal published a large photograph across their front page, and the headline read, A thief brings us a work stolen from the Louvre. So it's back? No. But someone else stole something. This is clickbait. (laughs) It's clickbait. It was an Iberian bust of a female. Spanish. Yes. 
but you know it's thousands of years old so this female sculpted head had been stolen from the louvre and still had the louvre's museum identification number am880 on it now it was handed over to the paper with a letter detailing where it came from mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that they'd sold the other bust to this unnamed painter uh-huh who could this unnamed painter be iberian spanish spanish pablo picasso pablo picasso so at the time picasso was in france he was part of that bohemian montmartre moulin rouge the cast of moulin rouge exactly and he even had his own little group of people the moulin rouge the band picasso it wasn't creative wasn't so much into the words (laughs) and they lived that kind of bohemian lifestyle his first love ferdinand olivier wrote in her journal it's now six months that i've been living here with pablo when i arrived it was very hot in the studio and at present it's fearfully cold i stay in bed covered up to avoid being frozen by the cold there's no coal no fire no money max jacob and apollinaire come each day Picasso and Gilliam can laugh their own entire night of suggestions, inventions, songs, games. The studio rings out with laughter. Foolishness takes us over, and like children, we encourage each other mutually to see who can become the most absurd. (laughs) So that guy, Gilliam Apollinaire, was one of the members of the band Picasso. He's considered one of the foremost poets of the early 20th century. He is one of the earliest defenders of cubism, which he coined the term, and he also even coined the term surrealism. Wow, it's a lot of contributions to art history. <laughs> At the time, the Louvre had put on display their primitive Iberian sculptures from the 4th or 3rd century BC. Now, Picasso was really drawn to these figures, of course, for one reason. He's Spanish. Right. But he also just felt like there was some amazing artistic credit to them. Now, one of the people that was in the band Picasso, at least tangentially, was Gary Pierre. Now, he was this guy from Belgium, and he at one time had served as Apollinaire's secretary. Now, after hearing of Picasso's affinity for the recent additions to the museum, he visited the Louvre in March of 1907. And within two days, he had stolen two Iberian sculptures, <laughs> presenting them to Picasso as a gift. In turn... Picasso gave him 50 francs apiece. That's not a gift. He sold them to him. Yeah. <laughs> but Sorry you know, not to parse here, but that makes it a crime. This guy stole from the Louvre all the time. His girlfriend <laughs> reported... Not better. His girlfriend reported that once he was leaving and he said, Marie, I'm off to the Louvre this afternoon. Can I bring you anything you need? <laughs> I feel like I would have been friends with this man. Like... For a year, and then I would have been exhausted. <laughs> well, so he's, he was talking to Apollinaire and Picasso and saying that he was going to steal more art. He needed money. He was this poor, broke guy. And they got really upset with the idea, and Apollinaire begged him not to do it. Yet. <laughs> and yet. And yet. So, Pierre is going to go shop at the Louvre, and uh-huh. they're like, no, you mustn't. You really shouldn't do that. You can't, you shan't, you mustn't. And he's like, mm-hmm. Okay, cool. BRB. Yeah, exactly. And he goes and he steals another sculpture and he comes back and he actually puts it on his friend's mantelpiece in the presence of dozens of writers and artists. (laughs) And Apollinaire is pissed and kicks him out. Does he keep the bust? It's on the mantelpiece. (laughs) 
And this actually is the same day the Mona Lisa is stolen. Oh my God, the guy did it. Like, I mean, I know history is like, nah. But no, he totally did it. But Pierre was pissed off that a Perlinaire kicked him out of his house. For stealing. From the Priceless Louvre. Priceless artifacts I mean, from the Louvre. You know. And he knew that the Paris Journal was offering this reward. And so he was like, hey, maybe I'll just go uh, turn this statue in and turn you guys in too. Uh-huh. This is getting ugly. And of course, he left that one statue on Apollinaire's mantel Mantelpiece. Piece. Right. So I was like, did he make him take the statue? Because I figured that might be an issue. Okay. So it gets published in the paper. This unknown artist is indicated. Okay. Do they like include samples of his work? <laughs> no, it's unknown artist. So everyone's like, okay, so like half of us. <laughs> we are a- all artists. <laughs> we are all unknown artists. Give us a weekend and a lot of red wine. We'll make you smart. But so Picasso and Apollinaire freaked out. <laughs> so again, Picasso's lover, Ferdinand, wrote in her journal. I can see them both, contrite children, stunned by fear and making plans to flee the country. They decided to get rid of the compromising objects immediately. Finally, they'd made up their minds to go out that night and throw the suitcase containing the sculptures into the Seine. They left on foot about midnight, carrying the suitcases. They returned at two in the morning, absolutely dog-tired. They still had the suitcases. And its contents. They had wandered up and down, unable to deliver themselves of their parcel. They thought they were being followed. Their imaginations dreamed up thousands of possible occurrences, each more fantastic than the last. So the next morning, they still have the statues. And Napoleon Air goes to the Paris Journal and talks to the editor... And it says he's going to offer them stolen statues on one condition. Anonymity. Exactly. And yet we know this story. But it hits the paper and the police are not going to let this go anonymous. So the police hear about this. This is, like I said, about two weeks or so after the Mona Lisa is stolen. So it is very hot topic. And they need a scapegoat. It helps that they're foreigners. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Foreign artists. No less. They might as well be sailors. <laughs> sailors are accused of every crime around this time, by by the way. So it was perfect. On September 7th, detectives arrested Apollinaire. He broke down and named Picasso. They went on trial, suggesting that they were part of a gang of international thieves who had come to France for the purpose of despoiling our museums. Destroying our heritage. So, just some context. The French take this shit super seriously so i descended into reading french copyright law the other day when i was working on this this is why we don't get episodes out i stopped myself from typing up notes on it thank you i'm sure everyone Um, thanks you so victor hugo and a variety of other artists came after the government saying that it was crazy that copyright died with people and their heirs should have access to it and on and on and on. And they also believe that an artist should benefit from every sale. And so there's this very detailed and comprehensive, crazy-ass heritage law, in, is what it's called, in France, that governs cultural artifacts and anything that is deemed important to French heritage. And so... If they're in the process of creating a conspiracy in which the object of this plot is to destroy mounds and mounds of French heritage, that is tantamount to someone like 
defacing the Washington Monument. Like, it is a huge issue. Well, like I said, and it's important that they're foreigners. You know, this yeah. is the rise of nationalism is what leads to World War One, World War Two, and all that fun stuff. Yay! And so xenophobia is really high you've got these foreigners and they know stealing artifacts from where they're from true but anyway the thing is they know this like the reason they don't want to be caught is not like a fine or jail they don't want to get deported and so things aren't great in spain round about now and so polinaire is arrested he names picasso 19 days after the mona lisa is stolen the police order picasso to appear before the magistrate so picasso is scared to death while being questioned by the judge, both men contradicted each other. Apollinaire accused his best friend, Picasso, of bringing the stolen statues to the newspaper, and Picasso accused the others of knowing the whereabouts of the Mona Lisa. Oh no, Picasso! Okay, that's... <laughs> that's embellishment. But then, you know, he ultimately just pleaded absolute ignorance to anything. Sora didn't know anything about these Iberian statues. Nothing about both and no Iberian statues. And no connection with the house of the Mona Lisa. But both men, as described by Fernanda, just broke down in the courtroom crying and begging for forgiveness. She said, I'm afraid Picasso never forgave me for having seen him so upset. So nearly half a century later, in an interview, Picasso spoke about the incident saying, When the judge asked me, do you know this gentleman? I answered, I have never seen this man. I saw Guillaume's expression change. The blood ebbed from his face. I am still ashamed. The thing is, you know he wasn't doing it convincingly either. Like, oh, nope, nope, never seen him before. No, he's like crying. He's like, I don't know who that is. I can't know how. So, (laughs) Picasso's ruled out. They let him go. Why did they let him go? He's a great suspect. He obviously didn't do it. And he is... He's crying. I don't know. Because <laughs> he cried. That's actually the so. reason. I think so. And, you know, of course, he goes on to become Picasso. I mean, he, he was already Picasso at the time. He was not some, like, unknown artist. He hadn't reached the peak of his fame, but people knew who he was. Yeah. Especially in the, you know, in the art community. In France. <laughs> Which is just France. <laughs> but Apollinaire went on. This, like, broke him down. It just destroyed his life, basically. I feel bad for having so much fun about it. It's terrible. So, I don't know if you know this, but the Jay-Z and Beyonce video clearly features the Mona Lisa in the background, so I know it's there. How we get it back. I'm glad you have some cultural touchstones for (laughs) So, somewhere between Picasso and Beyonce, the Mona Lisa got back to the Louvre. Somehow. So, the police kind of constructed what most likely happened. So, on the day the museum was closed... Hiding in a storage closet was at least one man dressed in a white artist's smock. He'd most likely been there since the previous day, the Sunday, the museum's busiest day. Just before closing time, slipping into the little closet and hiding until the next day. Now the painting, while in its frame, was quite heavy, weighing up to 200 pounds. It was in a big gilded frame, but it was like you said, done on poplar wood. Mm -hmm. And it's small. And it was only hung on four wooden hooks. Not highly secure. It did have a glass case around it, which was easily removed. (laughs) And the thief discarded the frame in the stairwell and placed the 30 by 21 inch painting underneath his smock. Now somehow the thief had obtained a key to the door at the bottom of the stairwell. 
but it didn't work. Thinking quickly, he used a screwdriver to remove the doorknob. But down the stairs came one of the Lou's plumbers named Sauvé. Now later, Sauvé, the only person to witness the thief inside the museum, would testify, yeah, would testify that he had seen only one man dressed as a museum employee. The man had complained that the doorknob was missing. Apparently thinking that there was nothing strange about the situation, Sauvé produced a pair of pliers to help him open the door. So why did they think he had a key if the doorknob was removed? We find out about the key later. Okay, sorry. The plumber suggested that maybe they should just leave it open in case anyone else should want to use the staircase. And the, case, and the thief agreed, and the two parted ways. <laughs> I'll be back for the rest of the room in two hours. The thief walked through the galleries and toward the main entrance with the painting under his smock. The guard had left his post to fetch a bucket of water to clean the vestibule so he never saw the thief or thieves leave the building. One passerby did notice the man on the sidewalk carrying a package wrapped in white cloth, and he did recall noticing the man throw a shiny metal object into the ditch along the edge of the street. It was the doorknob. <laughs> so the only this evidence is so pink oh, Panther. The only evidence is the doorknob and the plumber's testimony. Which they showed him hundreds of photos and he was clueless. So no serious leads other than Picasso. <laughs> but then an international dealer in Florence, Alfredo Gary, received a letter in November of 1913, more than two years after the painting had vanished. The sender had signed himself Leonard and claimed to have the Mona Lisa in his possession. Leonard, if you don't know, is short for Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, right. This is ghost. <laughs> Probably so. Leonard said he was an Italian who had been, quote, suddenly seized with the desire to return to his country at least one of the many treasures which, especially in the Napoleonic era, had been stolen from Italy. I have problems with that statement. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't stolen in the Napoleonic right. era. Exactly. It, actually, to Francis credit in this case, was not stolen. For once. For <laughs> once. Like the one painting that <laughs> wasn't. And you know, he, he said he wasn't a wealthy man and but while well, he only wanted to do this to give back to his country. To repatriate the, the Mona Lisa. He would accept a reward. Oh, well how generous of him. So and they looked at the P.O. box, and it was in Paris. Gannett took the letter to Giovanni Poggi, the director of Florence's Uffizi Gallery. Now, he had photographs from the Louvre that detailed certain marks that were on the back of the original panel that a forger wouldn't be aware of, and also the, you know, crackle in mm-hmm. the painting as well. The mysterious Leonard agreed to meetings several times, and then would cancel them. And so they just assumed it was a hoax and blew it off. I mean, you would. Until on December 9th, he received a telegram from Leonard saying that he was in Milan and would be in Florence on the following day. Now, Poggi was out of town, so he sent him an urgent telegram telling him to get his ass back to Florence. So, surprisingly, Leonard shows up. (laughs) A thin young man wearing a suit and tie with a handsome mustache arrived at the dealer's gallery. Well, I do say so. Your mustache precedes you. Now, according to Gary's account... He asked him, you know, how do we know that this is the real Mona Lisa? Right. And Leonard coolly replies, because I took it off the Louvre walls myself. Oh, well, that'll do it. And he wanted 500 lira. 
And so they, they arrange, give it to him? Well, so they arrange the meeting. They go to the Uffizi Gallery to try to authenticate it. They look at the paintings, look at the pictures, and they're like, this shit is real. I mean, you have to be just like about to pee on yourself if you're the, if you're the two of them. But before they went to the gallery, I forgot to mention this, uh, Leonard brings the two men to his hotel room. Mm. And they're like, where is it? And he opens up his trunk and he starts taking out shoes and clothes and all of that. And there's a false bottom. Oh. And he removes the false bottom and wrapped in cloth is the Mona Lisa. So it was probably in the false bottom of a trunk that was inspected the day after it left. Well, no, he'd been in France. He'd been in France. He just came down to Italy. Gary said, to our astonished eyes, the divine Mona Lisa appeared intact and marvelously preserved. As they evaluated it, they decided it was real. They shook hands, congratulated him on how patriotic and amazing he was and how perfect of an Italian he was. (laughs) And they were like, all right, we're going to get the money together. And they promptly called the police. So not long after Leonard returned to his hotel room, he answered a knock at the door and found two policemen there to arrest him. When a reporter telephoned a curator of the Louvre to tell him the news, the Frenchman was in the middle of his dinner and said, that's impossible, and hung up. (laughs) But the following day, the museum issued a cautious statement. The curators of the Louvre wished to say nothing until they have seen the painting. But the Italian government made the official announcement... And the French ambassador made calls on the Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Italy to offer his government's gratitude. Now, they pretty much decided it was going to go back to France, saying the Mona Lisa will be delivered to the French ambassador with a solemnity worthy of Leonardo da Vinci and a spirit of happiness worthy of Mona Lisa's smile. Although the masterpiece is dear to all Italians, as one of the best productions of the genius of their race, we will willingly return it to its foster country as a pledge of friendship and brotherhood between the two great Latin nations. That didn't hold up too well, did it? Not long. (laughs) So on January 4th, 1914, it took its place back in the Louvre. And in the next two days, more than 100,000 people filed past. That's crazy. Now this might shock you, but Leonard was not this master thief's real name. And here I thought it was Leonardo da Vinci's ghost. Now his name was Vincenzo Perugia. Italian born in 1881, he was an aspiring artist and he moved to France as a young man. Now, he was called a house painter by the prosecution. He was on trial and he immediately stood up and declared himself an artiste. A pittore. (laughs) Now, he did have two previous criminal convictions for minor incidents, such as he spent a night in jail for attempting to rob a prostitute. And eight months later, he spent a week in the Macon, the notorious Parisian prison, and paid a 16-franc fine for carrying a gun during a fist fight. He was only fisticuffs, supposed to be no firearms, you know the rules, Leonard. And the thing is, he very briefly worked at the Louvre from October 1910 to January 1911. So maybe that's where he got the key? Fitting the glass case around the Mona Lisa. Some sources say, I should say, that is not 100%. So there were no questions of guilt, obviously. The legal proceedings were just kind of like an inquest. (laughs) She's like, what were you thinking? Just, no, really, even the defense is like, dude, what were you thinking? Well, he was asked why he had stolen the Mona Lisa, and he continued on with that patriotic fervor, which, like I said, was all the rage in a lead-up to the Great War. He responded that all the Italian paintings in the Louvre were stolen works taken from their rightful home, Italy. When asked how he knew this, he said that when he had worked at the Louvre, he had found documents that proved it. He remembered in particular a book with prints that showed a cart pulled by two oxen. 
It was loaded with painting statues and other works of art. Things that were leaving Italy and going to France. Piss on Francois the first. I've seen the ox cart. Right. It's Napoleon. And, you know, he, of course, had a beef with France mm-hmm. because they had rejected his you know, art. artistic talent. Like, there is no sure way to make a crazy person than to be critical of their art. I mean, it's so funny because this is like... This is the time of the anarchist. Mm-hmm. It's like you so easily, if you'd met the wrong person, could have gone that way. Because he was called like a macaroni eater. <laughs> All that <stuff laughs> in France. Um, is that an insult? Yes. Okay. Old pejoratives. <laughs> That's our new show, guys. We're launching Old Pejoratives. In which we will be accused of being racist every week. We're discussing old racial epithets can't wait and his story just changed throughout the trial he'd be like i just wandered through the louvre and picked it up and they'd be like but you said in the pre-trial hearings that you had had a key to the door and tried to force it but ultimately they asked him why he stole the mona lisa he said well i decided on the mona lisa because it was the smallest painting and the easiest to transport and the courts that said there was no chance that you decided on it because it was the most valuable painting oh no sir i never acted with that in mind i only desired that this masterpiece be put in the place of honor here in florence but of course as they talked about in the trial he had tried to sell it to other people prior to <laughs> bringing it to italy but no one would take him seriously who would he try to sell it to Brit. No! Oh, yeah, not even Italians, yeah. So they didn't buy his patriotic fervor. At least the court didn't. The people did. (laughs) And he was kind of, you know, this folk hero for a brief moment of time. And after appeal, his sentence was reduced to seven months, which he had already been incarcerated for seven months and nine days. So he was... Basically time, sir. Released. And, but, you know, he went on into obscurity public never noticed his death the only obituary to him was printed in 1947 when another vincencio perugia died in france (laughs) and they mistakenly credited him with stealing the mona lisa retraction (laughs) now afredo gary did collect 25,000 francs offered by the louvre for the return of the painting the grateful French government also bestowed upon him the Legion of Honor. Oh, that's a cool deal. But that wasn't enough for him. He actually sued the French government for 10% of the value of the Mona Lisa. Ah! His contention was based on a Gallic tradition that gave the finder of lost property a reward of one-tenth the value of the object. He didn't get it. Oh, that's actually not crazy today. Uh, a lot of insurance adjusters will offer one-tenth of a painting's worth as the reward. Oh, okay. But while this was distracting everybody from all of the... Turmoil. Turmoil going on. June 28th, 1914, just a little while later. Uh, shot heard around the world. One of them. Archduke Ferdinand killed by an anarchist. Anarchist. And they're like, royalty is the only thing more pretentious than high art. Let's all look over there. So people got a little distracted. And then World War One, and that lasted a while. If you'd like to know more about World War One, please see our Anastasia episode, right. where I do Mean Girls History of World War One. Some people think that, that it was not him working alone. That's fair. Now, Carl Decker, an American newspaperman 
who was assigning Casablanca, wrote an article detailing this meeting he had in January of 1914, months before the trial began. Had met up with this con man that he'd become friends with through their travels at Wardo, and he overheard this interesting story at the bar about the disappearance of the Mona Lisa. And see, so he just commented casually to Decker that Perugia was that simp who helped us get the Mona Lisa. What? He was the patsy. That's right. He was, you know, told to go to the movies. Right. Now he told him that he was the head. So our con man, Eduardo, told the reporter that he was the head of a huge fake art syndicate that, of course, the French press had loved to write about. After years of success selling fake artwork, he had moved his operation from Buenos Aires to Paris, where he said thousands of paintings were being sold in the city every year. All of them fakes. That's probably true. That's probably true. So they concentrated on wealthy Americans that they could convince they were selling pieces of stolen artwork from the Louvre. Cool. But the gang had never taken anything from the Louvre before. So we didn't have to. We sold our cleverly executed copies and sent the buyers forged documents that told of their mysterious disappearance from the Louvre. Some gem of painting or world envy object to art. The documents always stated that in order to avoid scandal, a copy had been temporarily substituted by the museum authorities. Now in 1910, they decided that they were going to try to sell the Mona Lisa or at least copies of it, along with forged papers. He knew that most buyers were only interested in value, so they had to convince American buyers that it had been stolen from the Louvre and replaced with a replica. Now, somehow, the word got out, and the newspaper, Le Coup de Paris, published an article a year before the actual theft stating that the Mona Lisa had been stolen. Is that true? Like, that it was printed a year before the theft? Yes. That's insane. We'll get there. The next trip, we decided there must be no chance for recriminations. We would steal, actually steal, the Louvre's Mona Lisa and assure the buyer beyond any possibility of misunderstanding that the picture delivered to him was the true, the authentic original. They never intended to sell the real painting. He said the original would be as awkward as a hot stove. <laughs> they planned to create a copies and ship it overseas before stealing the original. Now, after the Mona Lisa had been stolen, the imitations could be taken out and sold to buyers. He said, we began our selling campaign, and the first deal went through so easily that we thought, why stop with one? (laughs) So they found six American millionaires. Six were as many as we could both land and keep hot, he told Decker, (laughs) the reporter. So they used some wood from an antique bed made of Italian walnut and... Pass them through customs in America one by one. And he said stealing the Mona Lisa was as simple as boiling an egg in a kitchenette. <laughs> Our success depended upon one thing, the fact that a workman in a white blouse in the Louvre is as free from suspicion as an unlaid egg. Big on the egg metaphors. Big on the eggs. So, of course, they recruited Perugia, who had worked there before, so knew the layout, knew the stairwells. But he didn't work alone. He needed other people to help him lift off that heavy protective cover and get the frame off. And so he went with two other people. Now, Perugia was paid well for his part in the scheme, but he squandered the money on the Riviera. Yeah, it happens. But he knew where the con man had hidden the real Mona Lisa. The poor fool had some nutty notion of selling it. We had never realized that selling it, in the first place, was the real achievement. 
requiring an organization and a finesse that was a million miles beyond his capabilities. Now, the thing about this story is, it didn't come out until 1932. Why so long? Well, the con man, this mysterious person that they met in the bar in Casablanca, said that he could not print it until he died. So in 1932, he printed it in the Saturday evening post. With an adorable Norman Rockwell cover. I don't think that was yet. (laughs) But it was a Hearst paper, by the way. (laughs) That gives you anything. Called Why and How the Mona Lisa Was Stolen. So, here's the thing. I love this story. It's a wonderful story. kind of buy it. Really? Why not? They've never found the six copies. Okay, fine. None of the copies were found. Well, if you thought you had the Mona Lisa, wouldn't you hide it in your basement? That's kind of what he was saying, is that no one would come forward to say they had it or get it authenticated. Because they thought they were in possession of stolen property. And the Louvre just had that fake one up. Or, oh yeah, the Louvre would have had the fake one. Okay, that makes sense. Why would I get found out and get my Mona Lisa taken away? The thing is, that news article, the year before this happened, is real. I found several articles from 1910 in the Fine Arts Journal saying how ridiculous this idea was that the Mona Lisa could be stolen. (laughs) It said, the story that the Mona Lisa has been stolen from the Louvre and a copy substituted in its place is one of the most sensational, which so far as art matters are concerned, has ever made its way into print. It emanates from a single Paris newspaper, and everybody knows that Paris loves sensations, and that Paris journalism is no overscrupulous in finding means to titillate the jaded palate of the French public. They go on to say that it was stolen by someone that worked at the Louvre, and alleged that it was sent to New York City. It also says the Mona Lisa is an admirable and a justly celebrated painting. It is a curious one with all the work of one of the greatest of Italian artists, and it has had a romantic history. But there are other pictures fully as famous and equally meritous. And French! In the Louvre. So, while the story is most likely not true, there's like this element of truth in it. Right, like how... If you weren't paying attention, like he would have had to have been a hell of a con man to have gone and done this research, or he would have had to not existed, and the newspaper man would have to be very crafty. And like read this report 20 years ago in one paper in Paris? Yeah. It's interesting. It makes me I think, think. there are probably six Mona Lisas sitting in like... One's in the Vanderbilt house, one's in the basement of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, probably. one's in... <laughs> J.P. Morgan's. <laughs> they were all buried Library. with them. Like, what? I don't know. But, yeah, it's it's a great story. I love it. I love that they, like, made up the backing documents and this, all like, of This, like, international ring of forgers and art thieves. And but that's just too silly to happen. I mean, it sounds like a movie. It sounds like the Thomas Crown Affair or something. I don't even know what that is. I know Pierce Brosnan is in it. I never saw it. But... Around the time that movie was made, this was all really happening. What do you mean? I have a story. A story, you say? It involves two men, one man named John Drew and an artist named John Myatt. They pulled off an ingenious scheme, and they introduced a plethora of evidence into the official record of art history as they sold forgeries based on that altered record. Wonderful. So Myatt lived in a cottage in Staffordshire village of Sognal. And before beginning his career as an art forger, he was an artist. 
He painted murals and commissions, but he never really developed any palpable style of his own. He was also a musician, and he was famous-ish for a hit single called Silly Games, which made the British Top 40 in 1979. That's my jam. I don't know it, and I, I meant to I pull it up. I don't know either. <laughs> so in the mid to late 80s, Myatt had placed an ad in a satirical magazine called Private Eye, offering to paint in the style of famous artist for a fee. He might do a portrait of a friend in the style of Van Gogh, or add the patron's dog to like a Surratt in the park scene, or do a Matisse to match the color scheme in someone's muted living room. But would he sneak into the house and hang it? No. Oh, well. They knew it was coming. So in 86, he began using his mimicry skills for evil. No. <laughs> he was painting Brock, Matisse, Giacometti, Le Cabousier, others, and he faked their styles with such virtuosity that his paintings passed off for the real thing. But in 1995, as he was pre- preparing his two young children for school, a Scotland Yard detective appeared upon his doorstep. The man's name was Detective Sergeant Jonathan Searle, and he was a one-time painter, art restorer, and art historian, who now worked for Scotland Yard. Wasn't this perfect? Mm-hmm. So he searched Myatt's home, and he found sketches, art books, and works in progress. And the art books would be, like, dog-eared on the page of an artist that he'd forged it was and there'd be like paint drops and things like that like it was like very incriminating it's a bad search history yeah the works in progress could all be recognized as being in the style of a famous artist as well so Mike confessed on the spot to having drawn and painted what the police later said were about 200 forgeries in the style of nine modern masters He said he'd personally delivered them to London about every six weeks or so to a man named John Drew. Now, Drew passed these forgeries off through auction houses like Sotheby's and Christie's, and even through dealers in London, Paris, and New York City. Myatt said that he used house paint to create his paintings and added KY jelly to the pigments to give them more body and fluidity. He estimated that he'd made about $165,000 over the years, and he offered to turn in his remaining $30,000 and turn witness for the prosecution. So seven months after Myatt's arrest, in April of 1996, Drew's home was raided by the police. They found hundreds of documents from the Victorian Albert Museum, the Tate Gallery, and the Institute of Contemporary Art. Sitting on Drew's kitchen table were two catalogs missing from the V&A's National Art Library still in the museum bag that Drew had used to smuggle them out. There were two rubber stamps bearing the authenticating seals of the Tate and an order of monastic priest, receipts for the sale of paintings across continents going back decades, certificates of authenticity from the estate of de Buffet and Giacometti, and also the more mundane instruments of document forgery like scissors, razors, correction fluid, glue, and tape. I mean, they weren't trying to hide anything. (laughs) This is like out on the kitchen table. Yeah. Ooh, hey guys. Didn't know you were coming over. You would think he would have hidden it. I mean, the first guy, he had no clue. Well, the first guy, I think, wanted to get caught. We'll get there. No, but I'm saying like after, you know, once the oh, it was kept document s- forger. Oh, it was kept secret. Secret. So Myatt never, no one ever knew of Myatt's arrest because he, uh-huh. he was cooperating with the authorities. Uh-huh. So Drew's real genius lay in his ability to authenticate all of these forged works through 
bogus provenance. So provenance is like that history of the work of art. Like who owned it? Who mm-hmm. passed through? It's like it's chronological timeline. Right. It's like when you have to fill out your work history on a resume, basically. And if you have a missing spot in your work history, they ask questions. Right. So Drew had systematically infiltrated some of the world's most security-conscious art archives, altering the provenance of genuine paintings to establish a lineage, making way for Myatt's mostly unexceptionable forgeries, with false records that provided the pictures with instant heritage. To this day, art institutions remain unsure how many falsified entries remain in their archives. Of the 200 forgeries known to authorities, only 73 have been recovered in 1999. Oh, no. So the police call the con the biggest contemporary art fraud of the 20th century. The British Prosecution Office declared Drew a menace to Britain's cultural patrimony. From the New York Times, they exposed the art industry as its own worst enemy, too reliant on sources of authenticity that are vulnerable to manipulation and riddled with conflicts of interest that invite corruption. Drew's story says less about his own brilliance than about the readiness, if not willingness, of the art world to be deceived. So Grin Lowry, the director of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, says, It is one of the most extensive frauds in the visual arts. What distinguishes this case is how methodical Drew was, how well he understood the process of validation, His manipulation of the system is as interesting and troubling as the forgeries themselves. The reporter described True as a man of median height and build with slate eyes and brown hair. He wore gray inmates clothes and smiled aggressively when displeased and talked compulsively. This guy sounds like some mad genius. I love that he, what does he say? Smiles aggressively when displeased. I, that's awful. Joker. Yes. So people who were going to interact with Drew as he was going through the trial process, mainly from the media, were told never to sign anything in his presence. Because he could like forge it? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, no. One attorney warned, over his history, everyone who dealt with him in one way or another took a turn for the worse. So when he was 17, Drew changed his name from John Cockett to John Drew and disappeared for 15 years. Do they know what happened to him, what he did now? Well, he has some theories. Oh. He claims that in addition to being a descendant of the Earl of York, he has an IQ of 165. And he says that he's a physicist, which is the perfect ruse if you think about it. Because like, if you start a conversation with a physicist and you're like, I have no idea what he's saying. Just stop talking. You're like, just stop talking. You're boring me. I'm sorry, my phone's ringing. I believe you. So he said that he had left during the missing years to join the student protest in Paris. And then he went to Germany, where he says, I studied physics for a period of six years at Kiel University and came back to the United Kingdom. He claims that he taught experimental physics at the University of Sussex for a year. And then he says he received a second PhD in physics from SUNY Buffalo, which neither university agrees with. I never heard of him. Never heard of him. Who's that guy? Um, It's kind of funny I'm surprised he wasn't able to, like... Come up with some fake documents for that. Uh, well, I think the documents were fine, but you can't make people remember you if they... Can you? What about with his hypno-ray? He can inception them. But he met a woman named Bathsheba Goudsman. She was an Israeli immigrant and worked as a children's eye specialist. Goudsman bought her home in part with the German reparation payments to her parents, who were Holocaust survivors. She would later lose nearly all of her assets because of her association with Drew. It's batting a thousand, this guy. So on their first date, 
Drew rolls up in a Rolls Royce. Did he steal it? No, I think he rented it. He was in the back seat, had a driver, did et cetera. Did he borrow it? I think he did. <laughs> so he shows up tons of flowers in a suit on their first date. Now, he says that he was an advisor with the Atomic Energy Authority and a board member of British Aerospace. None of this was true. And then he said that he was with the Ministry of Defense in 1980, and he says that later he was working with a munitions company in Woolwich. He was actually teaching physics for a short time at a Jewish high school. He left in 85. When the Times queried the school about why this happened, the administrators say, we made him feel that he should leave, and he did so. And then he hung up. No. So Drew would often introduce Goudsmith as his wife, but she was not. Um, she would never agree to marry him. She said, he asked me three times to marry him. The reason I didn't marry him, I knew there was something wrong, something very strange, but I couldn't put my finger on it. He did everything behind locked doors. They had a boy and a girl, and she did become his common-law wife, but never technically agreed to marry him. She would point that out over and over again. So Galsman began to take notice of a lot of paintings passing through the house, and Drew claimed that they were from the estate of a wealthy member of the Atomic Energy Authority. And the group was in the process of selling all the pieces one at a time. Drew said he was getting a small commission for his role as a middleman. And at one point, she caught Drew spreading mud on a painting in their backyard. And he said it would make it look more old because it had been in a vault for many years and looked too new. There was something odd going on. I just couldn't put (laughs) my finger finger on on it. A muddy finger. (laughs) So when Drew met Myatt, the forger, Myatt was at the bottom of the shit barrel. Like, he was having a really, really rough time. His wife had just left him for another man, leaving him with their two children. Oh, man. And he was teaching at a local school, and he says, I spent all day teaching other people's children and had no time for my own. I wasn't doing my own painting, and I needed to find a way to work at home. So he remembered that a few years earlier, a friend had paid him $400 to copy a painting by the French post-impressionist Raoul Duffy. He copied the picture, and his friend later told him that the painting was fooling experts. So he placed the ad in private eye, and then a little while later, he received a call from, quote, Professor Drew, who said he was a nuclear physicist in need of paintings to decorate his home. Drew asked for a Matisse, and then a Klee, and then two marine paintings in the 17th century style of Dutch masters. So Myatt dropped his canvas off in London, and he ended up confiding in Drew that he had recently gone through a messy divorce and was having trouble supporting his two children. He would later say to Drew in court on the stand, I was very much your creature. Wow. So he was pulling, he was trying to say Drew was pulling the strings. Mm-hmm. He says, I found you hypnotizing and challenging and a very exciting person to be around. But, I mean, but I mean, in his situation, it's like, that is the most it's so easy to manipulate. It's like he's got nothing. Oh, and he eases him into it, too. He'll be like, just sign these. I want to tell my wife they're real. <laughs> sign it for me. And so he, he'll do it. And then, like, he invites him to lunch at the Tate Gallery one day. And he looks up and sees the two paintings he signed for his wife hanging up there being donated to the Tate. Look at that. And he's like, you have to get them back. No. Yeah, so he, like, eases him into it. It is a very slow creep what this guy does. One day, Drew asked Myatt what style he wanted to paint in, and Myatt told Drew he'd always relished the idea of painting in the Cubist style. So Myatt painted Drew a Brock, and Drew later called Myatt in 86 
and told him, I took one of your paintings to Christie's and they said it was worth $38,000. No. That was the moment that the legitimate business stopped and the crime began. He said to come down to London and we'd talk it over. And I said, I can't believe it. Are you aware that it's painted in emulsion paint? He pauses. My vanity was quite ghastly. The mistake occurred here. My reaction was to express an interest. <laughs> so he's like, I did it in house paint. How are they buying this? Yeah. And he's like, when I asked that question, the door was open. And I didn't even realize it. So Myatt took trips to Coventry Cathedral to copy studies of Graham Sutherland's sketches that were produced before he created the huge tapestry Christ in Glory. And he also produced Giacometti reproductions in a matter of hours, which would sell for $175,000. And then he started producing Ben Nicholson, Nicholas de Stahl, Le Cabousier, Matisse, and more. Glorying and painting his way through the 20th century art history, his orthodox formula of emulsion and KY jelly was fast drying, allowing him to paint quickly, if obsessively. I took no trouble, technically, he said. There was a negligence to everything I did. It was kind of an addiction. It was shocking. It quite terrified me. The moment they started to restore them, they would know what they were faced with. I was flattered into thinking I was a man of importance, Myatt says, although he concedes that he had an abiding sense of unreality, that this wasn't really happening. This would all end in tears. So they really picked the perfect time to become art forgers because the market was booming and still is booming this is very true starting with our good old 80s consumerism the this moment of opulent wealth greed is a good thing Greed is good we want to display our wealth we want to throw money around yeah so whatever we're not spending on cocaine and ferraris basically free to purchase cultural heritage and patrimony etc which is one of the reasons that they could get away with it because these were not museums buying things. These are people looking for symbols of wealth. Patrick Bateman needs a Matisse stat. Now, Gordon Gecko wants your Picasso. That sounds filthy. It is. It's filthy in so many ways. So some of the big sellers in the last bit of time, of course, Jasper John's False Start, which cost 3000 Bucks in 1960 sold for 17 million in 1988. And I don't know if you guys know this. I don't know if you're wonks or whatnot, but that's a really big return on investment. Oh, is the technical go. term for go. that? A uh, Picasso sold for 47.9 million in 1989. Van Gogh's Portrait of Dr. Gachette, which is still controversial on its authenticity was bought by a Japanese collector for a record $82.5 million. And the numbers have just continued to go up, and we'll talk about some more later. And some of that is because of, you know, that wealth in the 80s and starting that just status symbol. But also, there have been an increase in collectors in, like, the Middle East and in Asia, and so you have a bigger market. Right. More people with money to throw around. And during the 80s, as it is wont to do... Wall Street tried to get into the art market a little bit, and they started encouraging financial institutions to start listing the commodity prices of art, 
like give artists a stock value, basically. Of course they And do. I mean, it didn't happen, but that's how they were thinking of it. And they would tell wealthy investors that art was a really good place to park your money. And it was talked about like it was soybeans. Like they still talk about it that way. It's been a really recent big increase in the value of things. But experts usually claim that depending on the period and the painter, between 10 and 40% of pictures by significant artists for sale are bogus, are so over-restored as to make them the equivalent of fakes. Thomas Hoving, former director of The Met, said that during his tenure, a full 40% of the artworks considered for purchase by the museum were phony or over-restored. Like the widow of Chagall was accused of selling certificates of authentication. Supposedly, Salvador Dali was forced to sign tons of blank pieces of paper while he was lying on his deathbed for fake lithographs. And all I can think of is the Dali lithograph that we We almost bought. Yeah. A few years back in San Francisco. I'm like, it was probably fake. <laughs> I know. That's all. I thought of the same thing. It was cool. It was really cool. It was one of the Inferno pieces. Picasso. I've heard of him. And Cry Forger. Day. And Forger. <laughs> he was visiting with one of his clients and they're like, oh, I have a sketch of yours that's not signed. Would you mind signing it for me? It was one of his dealers. He says, sure, let me see it. And they hand it to him and he goes, this is for a client. And the guy's like, yeah, he's like. Is it a good client? He's like, nice. yeah. He's like, okay. <laughs> and signs so it. shady when he got old. <laughs> but like we've mentioned, hoping that Matt director said, when the collector gets what he wants and he's told it isn't real, he says, I don't care. To me, it's a Renoir. As Geraldine Norman puts it, many collectors' interests in art are reflections of social climbing and romanticism about names. A thousand things that have nothing to do with the surface of the work of art you are looking at. And she goes on to say that a, a forger's chief motivation is typically intellectual gamesmanship. Embittered by the spurning of his work, he takes satisfaction in succoring the entire art world en masse, then pulling aside the curtain and exposing himself as the renegade genius and the art experts as the frauds and the fools. Now, there was a genius to Drew's plot, and what he did was produce lower-profile paintings in a high volume. He did not introduce a famous painting that was so spectacular that it would garner a huge amount of media attention. So he wasn't making a Mona Lisa. (laughs) He was not faking the lost Caravaggio. But this kept up a steady stream of income and avoided intense scrutiny. And in order to do this, he faked provenance documents, or paper trails, for these newly created paintings. A painting's less owner is the forger's biggest problem, the prosecutor, Bevan says, standing beside a shoulder-high mound of banker's boxes containing Drew's output of faked documents. He pulls out a sheet of faked provenance for a 1955 Giacometti. You can show who owned the paintings in the 50s, just use people who are dead. But the last owner is usually alive. And according to Bevan, Drew used several people, most of them easy prey, old friends or acquaintances, down on their luck, in money or love, to front Myatt's forgeries. Some of the people that Drew used included, like, one of his old drinking buddies. Of course. Named Paul Harris. And Drew got him to sign documents on his deathbed. Another was Danny Berger, a luggage salesman who was having financial trouble. Under Drew's direction, Berger sold a number of paintings to Christie's and Sotheby's, as well as private dealers. And maybe most unfortunately of all, there was Daniel Stokes. 
who was Drew's co-defendant at trial. They had been friends as children, but lost touch for about 35 years. New York Times says, Stokes was in turmoil when John Drew reconnected with him. I divorced my wife, Stokes said. I was living in a mobile home, and I thought about old friends. And I thought about John out of the blue. He called Drew, who, it turns out, had been using Stokes' name already as an art owner on Forge Provenances for years. This is convenient. I fell into his hands like a ripe plum. He came to see me in this big red sports car. And this is his genius. He told me this horror story about how his wife had become a danger to his children. And he tried to get a doctor to commit her. And the story went on. He couldn't use their bank accounts. And he came at a time when I was quite vulnerable. His genius was to ally himself with me. He rang up in tears about his children. The hook was, according to Stokes, he, Drew, said, I own one painting by the British artist Ben Nicholson. We can perhaps kill two birds with one stone. You are in need of some money, and I have this painting. There are problems about its history, small gaps here and there. I can't use my name, but I need the money to fight for my children. Can I use your name as the owner? There's a small percentage in it for you. I got hooked by the romance of it, Stokes admits. So he was using his friends just as fill-ins mm-hmm. for this fake prominence, this fake history of these paintings that he was having forged. And I mean, using people who were in dire straits, like one guy he had running for him was a jewelry salesman whose shop got broken into and all of his inventory got stolen. And when Drew heard that and he knew that he was in dire financial straits, like waiting for insurance to come through and everything to be authenticated and didn't have any means of supporting his family, he was like, hey, you want to do this job for me? Like he would find people who were desperate and needed the work. To prey on. Yeah. So Drew would draft letters and have Stokes copy them. Um, I thought it was part of a game. I had no idea what false provenance meant. I wanted to believe him. He was a male friend who was going through what I was going through. He sussed out what my weakness was, both with the romance and with the possibility of making money, but it was the idea of a very old friend in a friendless world. When a friend or acquaintance was not available to be the air quote painting owner, he would create an entire identity. One of these identities was Lynn Martin, and he clipped pieces of names off old correspondence that he'd received and created new names and would so just, just created people. Yes. Created owners out of nowhere. Right. And so he would put them together on a piece of paper and then photocopy it a few times, you know, photocopy it, photocopy the photocopy until it looked kind of old and rugged. And like one of the documents was to whom it may concern. This letter confirms the painting by Giacometti is being sold with the full authority of the owner. This letter is signed by the owner of the Giacometti Lynn Martin. Lynn Martin does not exist. So in 89, he got access to the correspondence of the Institute of Contemporary Art. This is a library containing the writings of many 20th century artists in London, and he ingratiated to them by claiming to be a collector interested in the Institute's history and donating two paintings that Myatt says are forgeries. Convinced by Drew's claims and grateful for the paintings, they open their file. And according to police, the Institute's letterhead... And much of the correspondence from his archives would soon appear in Drew's fabricated provenances. He also wooed the Tate by donating a pair of forgeries, which he withdrew, but then made up with a donation. 
which he made uh, Myatt split with him. No. <laughs> and he said that he wanted to support cataloging and the archives, which is an underfunded aspect of the museum. Acquisitions is the big flashy thing, but archives are not exactly sexy to most people. Yeah, but so he's getting access to all these To archives, the research library. Which is where everyone goes to look to make sure the provenance of things are legit. So then he applied to work to the Victoria and Albert National Art Library, and he wrote his own recommendation letter. Well, if you can't get one from someone, just make it up. Dr. John Cockett wrote, John Drew is a man of integrity. Signed, John Cockett. Literally the same person. So the kind of scheme that he would have for forging the individual provenances is especially clear in the way that he backed up one of the Giacometti paintings. So he dissected a 1955 catalog of an exhibition at the Ohana Gallery, which no longer exists. Oh, well, that's important. Mm-hmm. And the original title of the catalog was Exhibition of Painting, Sculpture, and Stage Designs by Members of the Entertainment World. And so Drew matched the typeset of the original on a computer, reset the title page, and reworded it. And then he seeded the catalog with photographs of Myatt's versions of Giacometti, Chagall's, De Buffet's, De Stahl's, and Nicholson's, all done by Myatt. So he actually inserted black and white photos into the catalog. No. And so he, what did he do with the catalog? Like, I mean, he used that, that was proof. Well, he restitched the binding. Yeah. And then went and put it back in the library. So when someone went to research that painting, when it was up for auction... They'd find it. They'd find it there. No. It's diabolical. And then he created a sham company called Art Research Associates through a middleman, and he hired himself as an expert. When a New York dealer was trying to confirm the authenticity of his Myatt Giacometti, the dealer who purchased it a year before for $175,000 was trying to sell it, but Lisa Palmer who is the director of the Alberto Annette Giacometti Association, whom he contacted, would not vouch for the authenticity of the painting. Oops. So Scotland Yard had already been investigating Drew, and the painting had been offered for auction at Sotheby's in New York. But then Palmer, the woman in charge of the association, calls the them ac- up. The actual expert. Yes, calls and is like, uh-uh, no, take that. That's not real. Take it down. So they took it out of the auction. So the dealer thought she was wrong and tried to seek a second opinion. And of course, he contacted the Art Research Institute or Association or whatever the fake name was, and they put him in touch with Professor John Drew. Oh, yeah, that good old fellow. Who months early had thoroughly investigated the painting, issuing a report that concluded... The provenance of this painting is not in question. The dealer then arranged to meet Drew at the National Art Library, where they studied the forged Ohana Gallery catalog, which included a Giacometti in reproduction, amid other impressive works by modern masters, many of them, of course, forged. So Palmer continued to insist that the painting was fake, and Sotheby's had pulled the painting, and Scotland Yard was interested in Drew, and eventually the dealer, who they thought was in on it with him. Poor dealer. But the dealer was overwhelmed by the mountain of perfect provenance and was convinced that the picture was real. Drew took him to an expensive lunch and said he spent time researching art that was lost to the Nazis in World War II. And then the dealer paid Drew $600 for his services. Later, he would say, I don't care if it's fake. It's still the best Giacometti I've ever seen. Of course he thought that. Bevan, the prosecutor, said people don't think of a forger as going to such great lengths, but it was a full-time job for Drew. I mean, this is like a Batman villain. It's insane. Yes. 
I've never experienced anyone who had the level of sophistication of John Drew, says Melanie Clore, the director of the Impressionist and Modern Art Department at Sotheby's. She sold 14 of Myatt's forgeries. He was phenomenal. You're not talking about obtuse pictures that came with a dear old lady that have no history that have been sitting in an attic. In the case of one Giacometti, Clore says, this was a major picture meant to belong to the director of the ICA. So Peter Nahum, who's a senior director and the head of Sotheby's British Paintings Department for 17 years, and featured on Antiques Roadshow, fun fact. Oh, fun. And he's one of London's most respected art dealers, was among the first to be bilked by Drew. He complains that too many private dealers and auction houses are, quote, really interested in churning through as much money and getting as much profit as possible, and that both are consequently complicit in their own corruption. While at Sotheby's, Nahum sold 10,000 paintings a year, and looked at up to 40,000. As a dealer, he sells three to 400 a year and says he looks at about 100,000. He says the smaller number of sales reduces his chance of being conned, but doesn't eliminate it. Nowadays, Nahum laments, expertise gets in the way by slowing the process. You can't expertise on 100,000 pictures a year. You can't do your job properly and make any money. Leslie Waddington, who's another art dealer in London, agrees, saying, It's a much bigger problem than discussion about Drew. The real question is, who are the experts at Christie's and Sotheby's? Are they just experts in selling and chatting up old women? If the auction houses dominate the world, well, where is the expertise going to be? Will they have no one who has visible knowledge? They did call in additional experts to look at these paintings. This were not, like, it's kind of pushed off on the auctioneers and the people at Sotheby's and Christie's. Yeah, it seems like it would ruin their reputation. But, for example, the new de Beau, that Giacometti, that the dealer came and all of these things, it was analyzed by a MoMA conservator, Eugenio Ordine, and she was asked to look at the pigments, and she drew an inconclusive conclusion. Now, you would think if someone was analyzing the pigments used in the painting, they might notice that it's painted with KY jelly and house paint. Right. But she says, I was asked to look at the pigments, not the media. <laughs> so, as one person put it, when a forger is as successful as Drew was, it's not one person who's corrupt. It's not one dealer. It's the whole system that has failed. A lot of checks and balances should have connected, and they didn't. So back to Myatt. What's going on with Myatt? our forger. He was beginning to think that this was all a bit much. He did not like the way that Drew consistently preyed on vulnerable people. Drew had used Myatt's father's name on a forgery when he was dying, and that kind of pissed him off. He told him not to do it, and he did it anyway. Um, He'd done the same thing with Stokes. He'd even taken out parts of his mother's will to be used in fake provenances. She was still alive, too. And kept doing things like opening the trunk of his car and showing him that he had 30 guns. Oh, good. So he was getting a little weirded out. So he went to the Christie's auction where some of his de buffets were selling, and they sold for a lot of money, and he says it was strangely depressing. It should have been my own work. So Drew and Galdsmith were going through a very messy divorce, and he'd left, but he'd forgotten to take all of the evidence of the true nature of his work with him. Oops. And she contacted the police, telling them that she had three incriminating letters. She took the letters to a house in Hampstead to be left with a friend because she was afraid Drew would come back for them, etc. It's probably well-founded fear. 
And so the friend's house was burned down shortly after Seriously? she dropped the letters off there. No Yes, way. and it was determined that the cause of the fire was arson. It was started by, in a wastebasket, and a woman died in the fire. Oh, my God. And Myatt recalled Drew saying, I can't stand for it. And he told Myatt that he'd have to burn down the house. So according to Galsman, Drew heard that some of his papers were now at the house of Galsman's acquaintance. And he called her repeatedly, badgering her about how many locks were on the doors and whether or not there was an alarm. And by this time, she'd taken the evidence back to her own home. Now, the next night, a man fitting Drew's description was found hiding in the acquaintance's basement by a young renter. And a few hours later, the house burned. The witness failed to pick Drew out of a police lineup because he shaved his mustache, cut his hair, and took off his glasses. <laughs> so he had to be released. Three months later, Myatt had been cooperating with the police and they'd taken Galsman's evidence, and they raided Drew's home, and he was rearrested and charged with conspiracy to defraud and forgery. And after four days of interrogation, he refused to admit any guilt. And he never wavered from his story that the paintings were genuine and that Myatt was just a man he'd hired to reline some pictures he'd bought at auction. Drew's, quote, all-consuming drive to pull the strings, hence his title, The Puppet Master, has left him unable to live outside his own version of reality, says Detective Constable Inspector Mickey Volpe. He's a verbal bully who thinks he can manipulate anyone. As you start to learn more about this man, you realize the enormous web of deception he's spun. He was certainly the most devious character that I'd ever come to c come into contact with in my service. So Drew was released on bail and immediately disappeared. He was on the lam for about two months before he was rearrested after police tailed his mother to his hideout. He faked like five heart attacks, too. He kept faking heart attacks. Anytime there was like things were not going his way, like in court, in the interrogation room. And the judge just like, stop it. Yes, eventually. <laughs> so he decided that he needed to change his defense from the paintings are all real to I'm being framed. He claimed that he'd been set up as a fall guy for a widespread conspiracy that included Scotland Yard, the Ministry of Defense, and the governments of at least seven nations. And he claimed that there were not 200 paintings, but more than 4,000, and they were sold to finance covert arms deals that he helped broker between British weapons manufacturers and Iran, Iraq, and Sierra Leone. Man, he has been watching too much InfoWars. <laughs> yep. So Myatt wasn't a starving artist, but he was actually an operative for Combat 18, a violent neo-Nazi group, and Peter Harris, who appeared on countless false provenances, was really a South African intelligence agent and a weapons broker. He claimed that during his missing 15 years, he'd been working covert ops for the British government, and he claimed, quote, I was very active in the development of certain items of defense technology. This, I bet he was. The sale of paintings relates to some pretty devastating things. They include the sale of ballistic missile guidance system, which I was responsible for selling to Iran in 1991. And I've got the papers to prove it. And his papers are so legitimate. Right. Not a single source confirmed any of this. So when the trial began, he fired his attorney immediately as soon as the trial started because the attorney refused to use this defense strategy. <laughs> I can't imagine why. And so he insisted on representing himself during the trial. He is a genius, as I'm sure he would tell you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you know what? Geniuses always tell you how smart they are. Always. So during the trial, Myatt's forgeries hung around the courtroom, and it looked like an art museum. 
And it was supposed to last for three months, and it lasted six months. Myatt sat on the witness box and called Drew a psychopath and a liar to his face. And by the end of the trial, the prosecutor was mocking Drew with the identities that he'd assumed. The truth is that you are Mr. Drew, you're two sorts of Mr. Cockett, you're Mr. Sussman, you're Mr. Green, you're Mr. Atwood, you're Mr. Martin, Mr. Bayard, the researcher, Mr. Coverdale, aren't you? So the jury came back with a guilty verdict in less than six hours. Oh, that's not a good sign. Well, guilty verdict is also yeah, not a good like, sign. Yeah, like, so, <laughs> we've been out in the courtroom for 30 minutes, and the, the jury is back. So John Myatt served one year in prison. Patsy. He was a patsy. But he went on to have a very successful career. He has a business called Genuine Fakes. Oh, look at that. Uh, where he sells fake paintings that he says are fakes, that he signs with his name. And he's hosted two different shows on the BBC. Or one of them, I think, is on Sky Television. Anyway, British TV, whatever that is. And one of them is where he paints famous people in the style of famous artists and talks to them about art. And he's had showings and sells lots of paintings and seems happily not in jail anymore and free of John <laughs> Drew. What happened to him? I think he died. <laughs> he di- heart attack? <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to tell. I, I wouldn't believe anything I read anyway. So he slipped off to Iran or whatever. South Africa. He was abducted by the tall greys or whatever. Aliens? Why not? Everything else is in tall the story. Whites. Tall whites. <laughs> whatever. He found a new one. New group of aliens. The history of art forgery is very old. Yeah, I mean, Michelangelo did it. He did. He mucked up one of his sleeping Cupid statues to make it look older and tried to pass it off as a work of some great master preceding him before he was a great master. And the same thing was true in Rome. When Greek statues were, you know, in high demand, people would carve new Roman statues, which we'd all be pleased to have now, but were not old antiquities from Greece, and they'd rough them up and scuff them up and say that they found them somewhere and not take credit for them and sell them at a higher price. This is as old as art itself. There are probably cave paintings that were done this way. But one of my favorite art forgery stories, aside from this one, which is like insane, insane, is the story of Han van Megering. So at the end of World War II, the Dutch Field Society was attempting to locate all of their nation's great treasures that had been, you know, borrowed, borrowed by, those, by the German fellows. Yeah, the German fellows. Stolen by Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> and there was an investigation concerning the painting Woman Taken in Adultery, which was painted by Johannes Vermeer. And as we discussed, not very many Vermeers in the world, highly valuable painting. And this particular painting had belonged to the Reichsmarschall Hermann Göring. You may have heard of him, commander of the Luftwaffe, among other things. So after the war, the painting ended up in a salt mine along with countless other treasures that he had procured for himself. Göring had purchased the Vermeer from the Nazi art dealer and banker Alois Meidel for 1.65 million guilders. Or about seven sounds mil- like a lot. It's about seven million dollars <laughs> today. Meidel said that this was a newly discovered Vermeer, and he said it had been sold to him by this man named Han von Migeren. So von Migeren was arrested and charged with aiding and abetting the enemy, <gasps> and you know, like being a Nazi sympathizer. Yeah, he and helped him steal the art, destroying the cultural patrimony or whatever we've decided we're doing when we steal art. And so he was kept locked up pending trial. 
Didn't you say this is a forgery story? Yes, it is. We'll get there. So new Vermeers had begun to surface in 1937. And among them was the disciples at Emmaus. And it was explained that this was part of a sale by a Dutch family living in Italy and had to be kept low-key and confidential so as not to alert the fascist. Definitely. That the artworks were leaving Italy. And a man named Dr. Abraham Bradius examined the work for two days. And he was like, that is legit a F. Oh, my God. It's a Vermeer. So now whoopsie-daisy, he's in the chain of custody. So is he charged? And he's like, oh, it's from Von Meegeren. He's won the finger. Uh, and everyone's like, it's Von Meegeren. I got it from Von Meegeren. I got the Vermeer from Von Meegeren. So now it's all on him. And so he's going to trial. And he's got two different people coming at him. And, and he is a Nazi. Well, <laughs> he has a defense. He has a strategy. What's that? Well, he claimed it was not a real Vermeer. Therefore, not a priceless piece of Dutch heritage. Oh. Therefore, not aiding and abetting the enemy. Therefore, aha, I took Nazi money. I was actually screwing the enemy we over. patriated <laughs> it. You're welcome. And they're like, how do you know it's not a real Vermeer? He said, well, I painted it. He painted it and five other Vermeers and two Pieter de Hooge. And all were put on the market in 1937. He suggested that the authorities re-examine Emmaus. They remained unmoved. That painting is a Vermeer. It's a Vermeer AF. We told you. And so he offered to paint them a Vermeer. Well, that's a great way to prove it. While they watched. And so in front of like the press and the jury and the defense and the prosecution and the judge and the everything, he sets up a canvas and starts painting a Vermeer. And as the work progresses... The war crime charges are dropped. Yeah. And they just charge him with forgery. But he's pissed about that, too. So they're like, why did you want to do this in the first place? You need to explain yourself. Why are you forging these paintings? And he's like, spurred by the disappointment of receiving no acknowledgments from artists and critics, I determined to prove my worth as a painter by making a perfect 17th century canvas. And they're like, well, at least you didn't become Hitler. And he's like, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> The paintings that he said were frauds were examined, and they're like, yeah, they're not real. And they're like, oh, shit. But cool. Glad that the Nazis didn't steal our not famous paintings. Whatever. And so he's sentenced to prison in November of 1947. And he died following a heart attack Was in December real? of 1947. Well, he stayed dead. So it's a pretty good sign. That's what he wants you to think. <laughs> so Van Meegeren had made the modern-day equivalent of $30 million from his forgeries. Wow. And after he died, they decided that he needed to give the money back to the people who'd spent all that money on these foolish things because it was the only right thing to do. But not the Nazis. Not the Nazis. And they go after his money, and they're like, we're going to auction everything off and give the money back. And they go to do so, and everything had been put in his wife's name. Genius. (laughs) And she died at 91, a very wealthy woman. His original work began to sell for substantial amounts of money because he'd become famous through this trial. Through this story. Right. And eventually, his own son would forge his father's works. Nice. And in 1960, the Coltrard Institute of London was presented a von Meegeren, the Procurus, and the gift was intended to be an example of forgery, kind of like a talking point, a conversation piece. And they were going through the process of authenticating it, authenticating this fake and they found out it was not what they thought it was what do you mean just some other forger did it it wasn't van meegren no it was scientifically analyzed in 2009 and it proved that it was a 
Dutch work dating from 1622. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it was painted by Dirk van Baberen, and it is depicted in the background of two works by Vermeer. And it's thought that this was the version of the painting that was owned by Vermeer's mother-in-law and probably hung in his home. <laughs> Oh, wow. So Turnabout is fair play, old boy. I love this story. Well, it is great because with all these scientific appraisal methods, when you don't have this clear provenance, there's no way of 100% knowing, right? No, there's no. Or you need a time machine. You would need a time machine, which, eh, not even Sam Beckett can help us. It's not within our own lifetime. It's not lifetime. You could do Pollock. (laughs) Maybe some late Picasso. He'll sign it anyway. Just go back and get him to sign it. But the correct or incorrect verification can be the difference of millions of dollars. So one painting that has been at the center of a lot of this is a painting by Caravaggio. I've heard of him. Do you want to tell us about Card Sharps? Card Sharps is housed at the Kimball Museum in Fort Worth, Texas. And if you're within driving distance, you should go. They have a fantastic and small collection but it's so good it's very well curated the things they have there are iconic and beautiful and you should go when we lived in Shreveport it was like every weekend I was like let's go to the Kimball <laughs> let's make the three hour drive to the Kimball so I've seen this painting several times but Caravaggio is one of my favorite artists like I went to an exhibition of his work at the Kimball and literally sat in front of a painting of John the Baptist for two and a half hours. Yeah, let you go down by yourself. Yeah, you did. But this painting, Card Sharps, was originally purchased by Royal Navy Surgeon Captain William Glossop in 1962 for 219 pounds. <laughs> now, in 2006, his heir, Lancelot. Yes, that man had style and class. He bought a Caravaggio and named his kid Lancelot. Yes, Queen. You win. <laughs> Lancelot William Thwaites decided he was going to sell it. So he went to Sotheby's in London and had it submitted for verification. They were going to you know, do their analysis, have mm-hmm. their experts in the old master's painting department check it out. The OMP. Yeah. You down with OMP? You know me. <laughs> and they unanimously decided that this was not a Caravaggio. I've seen this shit. It's a Caravaggio. I'm sorry. Hold your horses. Have you seen the feather on that cat? Because I have. I've seen it. You've made me see it. I know. I think we have the magnet on our refrigerator, actually. We do. <laughs> so they were like, eh, it's not Caravaggio. It's one of his followers. Um, Which one? One Point. of them. Bullshit. I'm getting very worked up over this. So it went up for auction and it sold for 42,000 pounds. Not bad. To a person named Orietta Adams. Now, see, she was friends with a guy named Sir Dennis Mahone, the world's foremost expert on Caravaggio. Now, Mahone, you know, the expert, was pretty damn sure that this was an authentic Caravaggio, and he knew a deal when he saw it. Bargain. $42,000. When was it sold to him? In 2006. Okay, so $42,000 in 2006. It wasn't pounds. Okay, well... Still a good deal. I'm going with still a good deal. But, you know, he is the expert. He brought it to all of his scholarly friends. And everyone said, yeah, it's a Caravaggio. 
He had it cleaned and restored, and a year later, at his 97th birthday party, he proudly unveiled the work and proclaimed it to be an original Caravaggio, dating to 1595, and worth 10 million pounds, so $16 million. That's a a scant more than... So he bought it for less than $64,000, and it is worth nearly $16 million. So they got a great deal in a real Caravaggio, but the previous owner was not happy. He sued Sotheby's for negligence. Fair. They're all a bunch of lying liar faces. They authenticated a ton of Myatt's shit house paint KY jelly creations. That's all I could think of. But they were found not in fault because they had several expert witnesses come up and say the reasons why they didn't think it was, you know, all that. I want to know why they didn't think it was. Because I'll beat them with my tennis racket. That's a deep track. Look it up. Why the tennis man? Tennis, what? I need to know. Uh, I think Caravaggio murdered someone over a game of tennis once. Well, he also murdered someone who's trying to castrate him and accidentally hit the I think that's the guy. Same one? Yeah, I think that's the guy. Unless yeah. unless he's a more prolific murderer than he was painter. Oh, oh okay. Oh. <laughs> but the thing is that this is just like good old-fashioned politics. Its reputations and careers are on the line. They're made or lost, depending on who people choose to follow and who people choose to believe. Ultimately, over time, you know, markets decide and the public and the intelligentsia will decide. So while Sotheby's may not attribute the work to Caravaggio, the Kimball in the rest of the world (laughs) really does. And this leads us to another painting that's been very controversial that was just recently sold. For a... $450 million. Yeah, that's lots of money. And this is the Salvatore Mundi, painted by Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, did we come full circle or what, folks? You like that? I do. I like the symmetry you have in this piece. I feel like it's just a golden ratio away from perfection. Now, this sold at Christie's just last year in November. The highest price ever paid for a painting. Now, it's hotly debated if this is an authentic... Leonardo da Vinci. Art historians in the 20th century knew that da Vinci had created his own version of the Salvatore Mundi. They had identified more than 20 copies that other artists had made of his version, but they didn't know where the original was. So, Salvatore Mundi is a common subject. At this time. Right. uh, At this painting. In the 1500s. So, that is a savior of the world. Right. So, it depicts Jesus... Offering a peace sign. Like benediction, blessing, saying. Peace sign. (laughs) And holding a crystal ball in the other hand representing the globe. And But the problem with this is that they knew that one existed. So they were people with an answer looking for a question. Right. (laughs) They, They were just looking for something they were sure happened. Sure existed. So no room for confirmation bias. None. Cool. So it had been painted over, heavily varnished, damaged, and it was attributed to one of Leonardo's students. And it was cataloged as a copy of one of his students when it was sold in 1958. And it fetched less than $100. No. Now, the painting was sold again in 2005 at an estate sale in New Orleans. And a consortium of art dealers bought it for $10,000. They really thought this might be the question to their answer. (laughs) Now, they had this extremely thoroughly authenticated. They brought it to every expert on the book. 
They had wood looked at. It was similar to, you know, wood he'd painted on before at this time. There were the thin layers of translucent paint. It was very, it's very three-dimensional, how the light falls on it with x-rays. They could see the underdrawings, the changes to the sketching. So they knew that it wasn't a copy of a done painting. They saw the sfumato, softness in the painting. The one sticking point, which I stick to, is Da Vinci was a genius. He studied a lot of science. And at the time, he was paying a lot of attention to optics. Right. He was looking at lenses. He was looking at how things come into focus. And that's how he was able to figure out how to make things look so three-dimensional. And the globe, this crystal ball that he has, does not reflect what he would have known of optics and reflections and the light. So that's the kind of one sticking point you'll see a lot. Well, and that hand is not rendered to the quality of the other. Right. But... By 2011, they'd had it authenticated by so many Renaissance researchers, and it was exhibited in the National Gallery in D.C. as the official Da Vinci work. As a result, they were able to sell it for close to $80 million in 2013 to a Swiss art dealer, who then resold it to a Russian oligarch for $127 million, and like I said, it was sold at Christie's last year for $450 million, who it turned out to be the Saudis. The royal family. Oh, just like literally the Saudis, like the like Saudi the royal, royal family, family okay. where the princes bought it, and it's going to be up for display in a few weeks in September of 2018 at the Abu Dhabi Louvre. Did not know that was franchising. Would like to get in on this. <laughs> the Louvre, I mean, like unaware of this. Is it like a McDonald's? Do you buy a territory? Is it? I think it's a little more expensive. Okay. Although the Louvre now has a McDonald's next to it. Do they it. serve Freedom Fries? I hope so. One of the first things you would hear from a Christie's official when talking about this is that when it was going up for auction, there's a lot of writing about this. There's that the only way to know what this painting is worth is to bring it to auction, which is, of course, ridiculous. That is, yes. Were this a real Da Vinci, its worth would be something known in the collective culture. The idea that the best test of a painting is to place it under the hammer at auction simply tells you how out of touch these auction houses are. They're focused on the money. They want to authenticate these paintings. Because if they authenticate it... They can sell they it! They sell it for $450 million. And their fees are pretty high. So do you think it's a... Do you think it's a Da Vinci? I think it's possible. The orb, like, is my big sticking point. And I'm like, maybe he started it? I... The face to me, the mouth, it rings true. It looks a lot like Mona Lisa's mouth. The rest of it, I struggle with. And I also wonder what's real and what's not. You know, there was a line in the bit we were talking about about the art market where it's like they're so over-restored as yeah. to be. And That's I'm like, what I think of. I'm like, did they paint that? How, how much d- of it is what it really is? You know, like how much was restoration? Because there are photos of what it looked like in 1910. Mysteriously, there are no photos of what it looked like before the restoration. But... It is so completely overpainted. It's like, what do they take off? What do they add on? It's, it's so, so hard, hard to, to know. And I, like we were talking about it before, and I was like, I guess they couldn't do like a mass spectrometer on it, like to find right. out when the pigments are from, because it's been painted over so many times. I mean, because there are so many ways you can authenticate a painting now with all the technology. You know, back in the day, even in the eighties, you had expert opinion. Mm-hmm. That's it. 
But now there's so much science that can be thrown in there. Well, and that expert opinion falls under the umbrella of what's called Morellian analytics. Right. And there was a doctor and art collector named Giovanni Morelli who put down like a systematic taxonomy right. of art, uh, which I think is so typical doctor. It's a U move. Yeah. yeah. Where he would catalog like the way every artist drew an ear uh-huh. and the way they would draw a knuckle. And he would say, go through, look at the ears. Are the Here ears are the this way? the ways they drew ears. Well, they really, there's one. And that's what's interesting. Right. Like, it's idiosyncratic. It's a thing you don't realize you do. And it's very hard to render an ear in a way that is photo accurate before photos exist. Or so, you like a knuckle. Yeah. And so these things made up his system. And it was adopted by connoisseurs and it took years to learn and it really did require an expertise and it was the closest thing we had to a science before real science got involved and it seems like something that would be so not easy but something that could be done like an, to make an algorithm in a computer program they're working on it yeah it they're seems working perfect. on it another way that things would be analyzed in the past by the naked eye and now through analysis using scientific instruments is looking at pigments that artists used. Right, right. Because certain pigments didn't exist in the world until certain times. You know, you have your ochres first, and then later you begin to see things like the uh, ultramarine, which mm-hmm. is made using a semi-precious stone called lapis lazuli, which right. is used for blues. And Vermeer uses ultramarine in all of his paintings. So all you have to do is look for lapis lazuli. Right. And then in the 1800s, there was a synthetic ultramarine that was produced for the first time. So you can tell if a painting is supposed to be before, I think, 1828, and it has this synthetic ultramarine, it's a forgery. Right. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Yeah, and you so, can do that easily with spectroscopy. Right. Which is just analyzing how light bounces off something, and it tells you the exact element, elemental components of something. So can that be done without destroying things? Yeah, you can take a tiny, tiny bit. Mm-hmm. The tiniest little bit. And sometimes people will use carbon dating. Right. And the size needed for that has shrunk in recent years, I believe. Yeah, but you still get this, like, window. Mm-hmm. You, know, you still get this big window, and so you can't tell within a few years. But you can know what century. You can tell it's not from this century. Right. People will look at the kind of crackling in painting and can tell that it's characteristic of it being a certain age. It's called crackalique. Like a leak right, analysis. And they use that with the Mona Lisa analysis. Right. And then people do x-rays, look for the underdrawings, and they've been doing that for years. And they can also tell if the painting is painted over something else. Like there was a Goya painting that was x-rayed and found to be a forgery because the painting under it contained zinc white, which didn't exist at the time that the painting was supposedly produced. So a lot of analysis can be done using a combination of aesthetics and science which is a a good place for art authentication to be because it should have some sort of system to it if you're going to spend 450 million dollars on a painting right and so the question comes to what makes art worth something you know as van meegren said at his 1947 trial yesterday this picture was worth millions of guilders and experts and art lovers would come from all over the world and pay money to see it. Today it's worth nothing, and nobody would cross the street to see it for free. But the picture has not changed. What has? And if we look to the other side, 
whenever the Mona Lisa did come to the United States in the 60s, Andy Warhol said, well, why don't they just have a, someone copy it and send the copy? No one would know the difference. Well, Warhol did have a way with words. <laughs> and copying things. Pastiche. So you'll be told for your, the course of your entire life that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But a lot of times, high art especially, is not celebrated for its beauty. It's celebrated for its prestige. It becomes a thing to where you say, I saw it. You go to see the Mona Lisa at the Louvre, and it kind of has its own room. There's a few other paintings in there that no one looks at that are masterworks. And people are crowded around, and they file past it. But it's just to say they saw it. It's on a checklist. Exactly. If you go to Paris, you see the Eiffel Tower, you see the Mona Lisa. That's what you do. And it becomes about... You're just trying to associate yourself with it. You're trying to put yourself in the circle of people who have seen it. Right. You're, you're trying to draw a line around yourself and, and say, like, I am on this side. I have this culture. I did this thing. I did what I'm supposed to do. I'm not an ingrate. I understand the importance of it. I've done this. And in a scale that I think few of us can understand, people who acquire art are drawing an even tighter circle around themselves. Exactly. And it's interesting to me that the Saudi royal family purchased that painting of Jesus from the West. Never thought of it that way. Never thought of that. Because it's not a, a painting that they're personally connected with. It's not their faith. It's not their their iconography. It's not their history. But it does something for their image. It does something. It says that we are this prestigious and this powerful, and it gives that it I mean it's on a national scale. I mean, look at this. Look at the reputation change. Look at the the community the messaging oh, right. of this that that is going on. And if a nation will buy into it, of course we will. Of course. I mean this was covered in every newspaper and every news outlet. Right. If it's geopolitics to buy a painting, what's left for the individual? It is a political act. Buying art has become a political act. You associate yourself with all of the historical connotations that surround these items and all of the cultural ideas that are put upon them. It's funny because we always hear that art is for the people. Mm -hmm. You go to experience it. You go to open your mind. You go to get culture. Mm -hmm. But since the very beginning, art has been possessed by the powerful it is a luxury and it's always been a luxury and while the art market has exploded over the last few decades it's nothing new and you have to wonder how many of these people would know if it was just a fake just a forgery just hang it up nobody would know the difference but if someone walked by the fake or the forgery and they had an intense emotional response and they connected with it and it opened their mind and it made them think a little bit and they carried that with them and that experience mattered, to them it was real. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, 
working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.